just remember one thing, and this I can say about myself because I've done this. When you want to do something, no matter what it is, just go ahead and do it. As crazy as it might be, even if it means traveling halfway across the world, to do something insane, do it. Hello, and welcome to Tomversations. That's T-H-O-M-versations, where the H makes all the difference. I'm Tom Kilkane, your host. How the H are you? You know, I'm doing pretty good. Actually, I'm feeling pretty good about this new year, 2019. You know, today, you'll hear from my friend Bob Batwin. You know, have you ever made a date with a friend to meet up and talk about things? And you're kind of thinking about what you want to talk about, what you want to discuss, how the conversation might go. But then you start chatting and you get into different topics and the whole thing kind of what you thought about just kind of goes out the windows and morphs into something way different. That's what happened with me and Bob. I thought we would talk mainly about his art. He's a heck of an artist. And I thought we'd talk about the process, you know, art, 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 art. But but what we ended up talking about was life, his life specifically. And in three hours, you'll hear his life story. You know, it goes from his first memory of art to, as a teenager, teaching an army general karate to traveling around the world teaching others this martial art form and then promoting kickboxing competitions in Australia and Japan and then to an illness that changed his life completely. Yeah, but he's a good storyteller and I think that you will enjoy how he kind of weaves his tale and his interesting life history. Also with this episode, you know, like we are saying, it's a new year. We start 2019. So how do you feel coming into this new year? You're making plans and setting goals for the year. And, you know, I'm not a New Year's resolution kind of a person. I always thought that kind of seemed a bit contrived. You know, like when you're a kid, did you, you know, like me, say something like, my New Year's resolution is I'm going to eat less candy. I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to clean my room. But it never really goes past that initial thought or maybe like the first couple days of the New Year, if you were me. But now that you're older, it's time to put some plans into action and get some goals going for the year. So here's what I'm doing, and thanks to my wife, Elise, I'm using a thing called a passion planner. You ever use one of these? And by the way, this is not a plug. This is just something that I'm doing and sharing with you, okay? And I've never been like a planner-type person, you know, like a physical paper planner. But I have to say that, you know, so far this thing has helped me out. And, but this thing particularly kind of helps you create a list of things that you want to accomplish, you know, goal setting. There's like, it helps you do like a, a three-month goal, a yearly goal, a three-year goal, and look at some things that you want to accomplish in your lifetime. And put as you put them down on a piece of paper, kind of put a date to when you want to accomplish these shorter-term goals. You know, you kind of create a wish list. So I'm trying it out. And I got to say, so far so good. Because through it, I've changed my daily rituals, especially in the morning. I I have a time before I start to work my my regular job. Um, I have to leave home about 10.30. I work from 11 to 7, right? And so I've got some time in the morning. I set my alarm now. I'm getting up at 6 o'clock, and I get things done in the morning. One of those things I get done is I come into the studio, and I start doing work. I'm actually making this kind of a job now. You know, I set it out. This is my schedule. I come in here, 9 a.m., boom, I'm in the studio. Sometimes it's a little later, but, you know, I'm just starting out. But uh, so far, like I said, so far so good. And we'll see how things progress. So it's kind of uh, fun and interesting doing a planner. And um, 
actually following through with the things that you plan. For this conversation with Bob, we used Facebook Messenger to talk to each other, and I wouldn't use it again because, as you'll hear, there is some strange delay or something when there's crosstalk, and sometimes when I would ask a question, there's this kind of delay, and Bob's reply will get a bit, uh, let's call it uh, warbly. Also, Bob had his phone on some kind of a stand, and he, he moved it around a little, and that does come through, but it's not too distraction, but you'll notice it, Okay. Okay, let's talk to Bob Batwin. You know, I appreciate you doing this. This is, it's called Tomversations, and uh, it's T-H-O-M-versations. I, I sent you a link so you can check out other conversations I've done, but so maybe I could just have you introduce yourself. Okay, well, actually, I'm sitting here at the moment in front of uh, Canvas doing some painting while we're talking. And uh, this is normally what I do every day nowadays. I wake up in the morning and uh, pretty much straight to my uh, easel and my canvases and painting away. Um, now, uh, well... Uh, as for what I've done in the past, many, many things. Um, as you well know, in Thailand, um, for a while there, I had a big boat, like a pleasure party boat, <clears throat> which uh, met a sorry end one uh, trip where it caught fire at about two in the morning and burned down to the sea level. And when the boat burned down to that level and it got there, the remainder just basically went underwater. Oh, wow. It was very unfortunate. It was a nice boat, too. It was a 26 meters, about 85-footer, three stories, five bedrooms, three bathrooms, kitchen, air conditioning, diving boat, pleasure boat. was fantastic. And, uh, yeah, once that happened, um, I pretty much decided that's it. I'm just going to stick with my... Uh, painting and do it on land so i'll be uh safe in doing that <laughs> <laughs> now um, let me think prior to that though i was in japan for a lot of years i was um initially went there uh, promoting professional fighters which i did also for many years yeah didn't you bring um uh, uh thai boxing isn't it Bring that to uh, uh, Australia, was it? And and to, to Japan? Weren't you one of the first promoters well, of it? Well, I was one of the first promoters that kind of like uh, got involved in mixed martial arts to a degree. It wasn't as organized as it is today. But I tried incorporating different fighting styles, different martial arts together in shows. And I did that uh, pretty much uh, for, yeah, for like six, seven years here in Australia. And then I went to Japan and uh, based myself there and brought fighters from Australia as well as the, the U.S. to compete in Japan. It's a big thing in Japan. Now it's a, now it's a big thing everywhere in the, the, in the whole world, yeah. Yeah, so it's basically, was that really like kind of the form of what's known as MMA or uh, mixed martial arts and that type of thing with the, well, the fight in an octagon? Those and all were, that? There were beginning days. I was 
the thing about my events is that I had different styles competing alongside with each other, but not against each other. And then, uh, yeah, the uh, UFC came into being in the United States. Back in the early days, it was uh, <laughs> total, uh, yeah, total chaos and mayhem in the rings. Finally, it was bought out by uh, some more, uh, some different people that had a different uh, vision and turned it into what is commonly known today, yeah? And now it's expanded all over the world. But I don't take any credit for that. By the time uh, this all happened, I already had left the sport altogether. I wasn't promoting any longer. I wasn't uh, coaching or teaching. I was just focusing on my artwork, yeah? Which I've done all along, but in those days, a lot of people knew me more as a fight promoter, teacher, manager, competitor than an artist, but I've been doing art since I'm a kid, so it's been with me ever since ever. Well, what was like your first memory of art? I've been doing it all along. I've never stopped. It's just that there were times when I had more free time to do it and other times where I had other businesses that basically took priority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was like your, but you, you say you've done it all along, but like, what was like your, can you think back to like, what was your first memory of art and thinking, you know, maybe that's something I want to continue to do for my life. Well, I didn't really think about it in lifelong terms at the time, but I remember one of my first memories was probably in first or second grade in primary school, having a, an assignment which most of the class went to, went to do by listening to the teacher what was required. And I remember I was just sketching on some paper, some ideas, and when the teacher had turned around, I had lifted it up and shown it to all the kids, so they all burst out laughing. I think it was something humorous. And then the teacher turned around asking, what's all the laughter about? And somebody pointed to me, and the teacher said, okay, bring to me what it is that you're showing everybody. And I brought the drawing up to her, and I remember the teacher being quite impressed, and she picked it up and she said, oh, this guy Bob, he's, he's quite the artist, so... Yeah, if you all uh, enjoyed seeing what he's doing, let's wait for him to see what he's going to do next. And, uh, yeah, we'll keep you posted. And never stop since since that time, yeah? Huh. And now, now where were you born? I was born in Hollywood, California. <laughs> now, having said that, People reckon, you know, I'm uh, involved in the movie industry or something, but the hospital was in Hollywood, and actually, after my birth, I was moved back home to Burbank. So, yeah, Los Angeles, that was my hometown. Wow. Now, so you're, how long did you stay there? Because I know you've moved around quite a bit. Uh, well, when I was six years old, my mother... Um, she had divorced my father, and she took custody of all the children, which were four at the time. And she decided that she needed some assistance to survive. And somebody told her that if she goes to Israel, there's a thing called the kibbutz. And they might accept her on one, and if so, she'd be able to keep her children together, keep the whole family together. So she went to Israel. And she took me with her, as well as my uh, two older brothers and my younger 
sister. What is what is a kibbutz? Well, in the old days, going back like 40, 50 years ago, it was mostly agricultural communes. If we can use the word commune, that was pretty much it. Everybody owned everything collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, jobs were designated by a manager who told who to do what, uh, obviously with everybody's agreement. Everything was divided in those days equally between uh, all the members. Um, yeah, and uh, that's pretty much what it was. And when my mother went there, I think in the whole country, there would have there would have been maybe 400 to 500 kibbutzim, if I'm not mistaken, quite a few of them. And she she wanted to be on one of them. Unfortunately, when she got there, none of them wanted to accept her, being a single mother with four kids. Oh yeah, it was too much for them to accept. So she, there was like a, a, a very rude awakening, a big surprise, not a good one for her. Um, having said that, my oldest, my oldest brother got situated on a kibbutz by himself. I think he was 14, 15 years old at the time. Me and my older brother by a year, we got uh, sent to a boarding school, and my sister was put in foster care. And my mother worked two or three jobs just to support us and pay for everything that everybody was doing for us. Yeah. And so you stayed with your mom then at the kibbutz? <clears throat> no, I was in a boarding school with my brother. Oh, okay. And I was there for about five years, give or take. And then my father decided he wanted us to come back to America. So he organized for all of us to come back and live with him, which we did. And I wound up living with him in uh, Encino, California, <laughs> next 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 to the Jackson Five, not far from them. <laughs> so you and Michael would go out and play in the street. Well, we're a few blocks away from each other, but I knew I knew of him supposedly being uh, a neighbor. In, the, in in that neighborhood, I had uh, quite a few famous neighbors, just to name a few people. Dick Clark was a neighbor. He lived a few houses down the street. So did Charles Bronson and Steve Allen. And Shirley MacLaine lived a hill up away from us. Yeah, and down the road, uh, yeah, the Jackson, the, and also Liberace. He had a house not all that far from us either. So anyway, when I was riding my bicycle down the street, sometimes I'd see them in their yard, sometimes, infrequently, but... Yeah, those those were long time. That, that was all a long time ago. Yeah, I mean Charles Bronson used to go outside and mow his front lawn. I mean he didn't even have a gardener. He did his gardening himself. Yeah. <laughs> so having been by him a few times, I just basically waved hello and he waved hello back, and that was pretty much it. Yeah, we never really had any conversations, but. Had I been a movie producer, I would have had something to talk to him about. Anyway. Yeah. So how old were you then when, so you moved to Israel when you were six. What, what, how old were you when you moved back to the U.S.? Uh, just before turning 12. And then I decided uh, just before turning 16 to go back there again on my own. Seeing, seeing that I had my uh, oldest brother still living there, 
I had somewhere to go to, thinking that I would uh, be happier being there because for some reason I just never really felt at home being back in the States after having grown up in Israel. I always felt that something was missing for me and I decided to go back on my own at that age. And so was your, your mom was still there too? So is your brother and your mom in Israel? My brother was there. My mom was traveling all over the world. She had been in Spain. She had been in Holland. She had been in Italy, uh, parts, different parts of America. Um, but a few months after myself arriving in Israel, I, I seem to remember my mom also arriving there as well. So when I was 16 or so, I had her around and I had my brother around. And what was, so what'd you do for, uh, so you were living with your brother, was he working and you worked too, or what, what was the, the, how'd you get by? All right, well, um, my brother was a musician and he was performing off and on in various uh, venues throughout the country and doing a lot of traveling and doing shows. At the time he had a English partner, meaning a musical partner, a fellow by the name of Barry, I don't remember his surname, but they were both really accomplished classic flamenco guitarists. And they used to perform all over Israel as a duo. And I remember accompanying them a couple of times where they went to uh, community centers, some kibbutzim, and uh, yeah, they performed uh, to considerably uh, large audiences, I mean, people, audiences in the hundreds or in the few thousands, which in those days I thought was a really big thing, yeah? Yeah, a few and thousand is a big thing. After, pardon? I said a few thousand, that's a big thing, I think. That's, that's a good crowd. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, I remember once that him and Barry, they sold out a couple of shows at the Tel Aviv Civic Center, which I think held about 3,000 spectators. So, yeah, it was them performing uh, solely, and they sold out the show. So that was pretty good. He was uh, quite an accomplished musician. And at that time also what, what um, happened was that uh, a friend of my brother's came to visit him, and coincidentally I happened to be there, and his friend was a, a personal secretary to a very uh, famous general in the Israeli army. And uh, when he saw me, he noticed that I was uh, in good physical shape, which I was at the time, because uh, being of high school age and having come back from the States, when I was in high school, I was uh, on the swimming team, I was on the gymnastics team, the track and field team. I was an all-around athlete. athlete. I was a jock, I guess. And besides that, I did train in martial arts privately after school. There was a, a school that opened up near my house in Sherman Oaks, right next, next to Encino. And the fellow that opened the school, his name was Joe Lewis. And he happened to have been, at the time, the United States heavyweight karate champion. And I went, to, as a kid, I went to study there and study with him. So I'd done all of this. And when I got to Israel, 
my brother's friend noticed that I'm in good shape and he asked me what I've done. And I mentioned all the different sports. And when I mentioned karate, he went, wow, like uh, Bruce Lee, because Bruce Lee had just started to become famous at that point in time, back in 1969. And I said, well, I do something <clears throat> similar, but not exactly the same. And um, he asked me if I'd be interested in teaching. And while I was teaching a children's class in America, um, that was pretty much the extent of my experience. And I said to him, I don't know if I'm qualified. And he asked me what belt I had. And I said, I had a probationary black belt. And he says, well, that sounds to me like you're definitely qualified. <laughs> let, leave it with me and I'll get back to you and I'll let you know if I can organize something. And a couple of weeks later, he had called me up saying for me to go to a certain part of the city to wait on the street corner there and somebody would come pick me up to take me for an interview. Hmm. So I went to the street corner and I stood there for about a half an hour while the limousine driver was standing there looking at me and looking around. And after a half an hour, he came up to me and he goes, who are you waiting for? And I said, I don't know, somebody to pick me up to take me for an interview regarding teaching. And he says, oh, uh, you look like a real young kid. I, I thought I was going to be meeting somebody a little bit older. And I said, no, well, if we're talking about karate, you're, you're looking at the guy that's supposed to be teaching. So here I am, let's go. And he put me in the limousine, and he drove me down to the, uh, uh, the camp where this general was based and took me into the office center. And the secretary asked me if uh, I wanted a cup of coffee or something. I didn't even drink coffee in those days. I said, no, thank you, I'm fine. She said, take a seat, and he'll be with you in a few minutes. And about 15 minutes later, she comes and she says to me, okay, follow me. She takes me down a corridor. <clears throat> she opens the door to an office and has me step in. And I step into this conference room, and there were like six officers on both sides of this long table. And at the end of it, this general was sitting with a huge German shepherd dog next to him. And he looks at me and started in Hebrew asking me questions. And I said to him in English, because I didn't speak Hebrew at the time. I had spoken it as a kid, but having gone back to America, I didn't talk it. I didn't speak the language to anybody, and I had completely forgotten everything. So I said to him in English, I said, look, I'm sorry, I don't speak Hebrew. Can we speak in English? Which he, he was able to do. And he says, yeah. He says, uh, are you the uh, karate teacher? <laughs> and I said, yeah, and uh, he looked at me and he was kind of shocked because here I am, a 16-year-old kid, standing in the doorway of his office, and he just basically said something in Hebrew and all the officers got up and they all marched by me outside and they were all like at least a head taller than me and a good probably 50 to 100 pounds heavier, each one of them. I mean, he, he liked to surround himself with big guys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um and once they exited, he said, come over here and sit down. And he had me sit to his uh, right or left, I don't remember. And uh, he says to me, can I uh, teach him how to defend himself if somebody should attack him? And I said to him, look, I said, uh, I can teach you karate. Now, how effective it's going to be depends on the situation, depends on you as a practitioner, as a student. I can't make any promises but I can do my best in teaching you something. How it's put to use <laughs> remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. He said, good enough. He says, uh, 
when can you start? I said straight away. I said the only obligation I have is school, but teaching would be priority if it were if it were to come to that. And he said to me, well, I want you to be on standby five days a week. I'll pay you for each day, but the day that I call you at 9.30 in the morning means at 10 o'clock we're meeting and we're having the lesson. So I figured, okay, he's going to pay me for five days and I only have to give him one lesson during the course of those five days. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal. And I said, okay. So he called up the big sports center up at the top of the mountain of the city where I was living, which is called Haifa, uh, the third largest city in Israel. Yeah, and he booked out the sports center for 10 a.m. to 12 every day of the week. And uh, he said to me that I'll, I've got to just sit by the phone at 9.30 every day. If I don't get a call by 10 o'clock, I'm free to go and do my daily thing, whatever that might be. But if he does call me, I've got to show up at the sports center and give him a lesson. And that's how it all started. Wow. And so that's that's how you started this uh, this long career of of getting into martial arts. So then you, you work for this guy for quite a while. And how long did that, did that last? <clears throat> well, off and on with him, his name was, uh, well, it doesn't matter. He was quite famous till this day. Many, many people speak of him. Um, he was one of the, um, one of the generals who was responsible for um, the Israeli army taking over the Sinai Peninsula back in 73. Wow. He was the commander of the Southern Division, the Southern Tank Division. Very, very well-known uh, personality in Israel. But anyway, for about, um, yeah, about three months I was teaching him, and then things just got busy politically and militarily where he couldn't continue to train with me. So he called me up one day and he just said, uh, Bob, I'm sorry, but I'm too busy to continue with this. I appreciate you helping me out and teaching me what you did. Um, and that was the end of it. And for a guy who was 44 years old at the time, he was uh, very, very strong. He was a really strong guy, very tenacious. And uh, we used to do an hour and a half training session. And uh, he never quit, not once, no matter how tough the uh, going got. And he trained with another four or five of his junior officers, and he was by far way ahead of any of them. Yeah? Very, very committed individual. <clears throat> by that time, Tom, I had also gotten a phone call from the university where the um, director of the sports department had called me up and asked me to come in for an interview because he had heard from somebody about this American karate teacher teaching the general. Anyway, I show up for the meeting with this guy who's the managing of the sports department at Haifa University. And uh, when I walked into his office straight away, he saw that I was not a local Israeli by my looks, my dress, everything, my age. He says to me in English, can I help you? Thinking that I got lost. I said, you called me for a meeting. And he goes, about what? I said, oh, about uh, teaching martial arts. And he says, oh, really? You're the martial arts teacher? And he says, I thought you were a bit older. I said, well, here I am. And he goes, you're teaching this general in the Israeli army. 
And I said, yeah. And he said, well, okay, well, if you're doing that, you obviously must be qualified. And if that's the case, let's get down to brass tactics here and find out what you can do. And I'll decide as to whether I'm going to employ you to teach uh, the students here at the university. So I brought some paperwork that I had with me back from the States. And when I wanted to show him the paperwork, he says, no, I'm not interested in the paperwork. I'm more a hands-on kind of a guy. I want to see what you can do. And I said to him, well, <laughs> I don't have anybody to demonstrate with, so I don't know what I can show you. And he says, don't worry. I'm a hand-to-hand -hand combat instructor in the Israeli army. And when I do my reserve duties, and I, he says, I think I can handle myself and you can demonstrate on me something. I said, well, if that's what you want to do, okay, let's do it. He moved his desk aside. He moved a few chairs aside. We're standing in the middle of his office, and he's talking to me in a way that, um, yeah, he's not giving anything away. He's trying to surprise me, and he throws a right hook at me like out of nowhere. And instinctively, I lifted my arm, I blocked, I blocked him, and I grabbed his arm, and simultaneously used my forward leg to sweep his forward leg, which caused him to fall down. And by me being in that position of holding onto his arm and having swept him on the floor, my right knee landed straight onto his throat, and my hand was right above his face with the punch position going. <laughs> You want me to continue? <laughs> and he was, he was surprised, I'll tell you that. And he started like laughing and gagging and going, no, no, that's enough, thank you. And I, I, I helped him up, and he sort of like got, got his breathing back to normal. Totally, he was totally, totally shocked that I did that to him. And very, very surprised. And I've got to say, I was a bit surprised myself that my instinct had kicked in so, so well and effectively. But then again, in those days, I used to train three, four hours a day, so it shouldn't have come to, to anybody as a big surprise. He said, okay, well, he said, leave it with me, and I'll call you, and I'll let you know. And a couple of weeks later, he calls me up, and he goes, I've got eight classes organized for you. Eight? Yeah. So I had uh, about 20 to 30 students in each class, so somewhere around 160 to 180 students that I was teaching at the Haifa University. And, you, and you're 18, you're a teenager. I was 16 years old, believe it or not. <laughs> now, the thing was, each lesson that I did, I got paid the equivalent of a day's wages by Israeli standard. So I was making quite a bit of money. And uh, I was teaching the general for a while there. I was doing these classes for a while to, simultaneously. So, yeah, financially speaking, I was doing very well. And I decided there and then, I mean, if I can be doing this at such an early age, I'm going to continue with this for as long as possible, yeah, which is pretty much what I've done. You taught f at the university for a while, and then how long did you did you ever do it as a – Profession? Were you ever involved in like uh, um, in tournaments or anything like that, or teaching beyond the university? Um, yeah, in those days, I, I continued. Well, the uh, general had to quit, and uh, the students at the university continued with me. 
and I did that for about a year. Um, the sport was totally underdeveloped in Israel at the time. There was a handful of people supposedly that were teaching, that knew something. Most of them did judo. Uh, there were a couple of karate people um, in the center of Israel, far away from where I was based. Only maybe a couple of people in my area. Um, and as it turned out, they really weren't all that knowledgeable. Um, but, um, yeah, I decided after about a year of teaching that I wanted to take a break. And for some reason, um, I went down to the Sinai Desert on a holiday, which turned out to be a year's holiday. I decided I liked it so much, I decided to stay down there. And in those days, I was doing a lot of artwork, and there was a um, cafe called the Red Sea Fish Cafe in a city called Elat. And I used to go there and sit there and do my uh, artwork there and sell my drawings to tourists. So that's how I made my living for about a year. Now, the, the, I remember some t story. I, I don't know. this. Guy, I could be mixing you up with somebody else. But did, did you, like, go and stay in that desert but not talk to anyone for a year? Or something along those lines? No? Well, I was pretty reclusive. I lived in a cave, hang out about five kilometers south of the city. So it used to take me about an hour to walk into town and about an hour to walk out to that area where I used to, like, basically camp out and go to sleep and whatnot. And about 10, 15-minute walk to get down from there to the beach. But um, no, I used to see people periodically. I wouldn't say frequently, maybe once every uh, once every three or four weeks, once a month. Maybe I'd run into some people along the beach, or when I'd go sit at the cafe. Of course, people would congregate around me, and uh, yeah, I had a chance to yeah interact socially with people. I wasn't a total hermit recluse. Okay. That wasn't the case, but pretty close to it. Pretty close. You lived in a cave. What what prompted you to live in a cave? Cheap rent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cheap rent. Uh, no utility bills because I had no utilities. There was no water. There was no electricity. It was just basically, yeah, a cave, which might have been <clears throat> ten feet long by about. Uh, seven, eight feet high at the highest point. Um, and I was able to lay down some cardboard and I had a sleeping bag and I would just lie down there when it was time to go to sleep and go to sleep. And in the vicinity along those, uh, along the ridge and the valleys, the hills, the mountains there, there were other people, I guess they were called hippies at the time, yeah who were camping out and doing the same thing. So, yeah, used to run into some of the local residents periodically. But for the most part, it would be going down to the beach and running into uh, tourists that came from overseas to do uh, diving and camping trips. <clears throat> and I remember a lot of them would come from Germany. We used to get a lot of German tourists. And they used to come and camp out on the beach with their four-wheel drives and they're massive, huge tents, and they used to come all equipped with generators and compressors for filling up the air tanks. I mean, we're talking like 
a military operation of sorts. And the good thing for me was every time I'd walk by, they were kind of surprised to see anybody out there, especially a Western guy living there, because I think the only thing they would expect to see would be nomads, Bedouin, Arab people with camels walking by. And I definitely was not looking like one of those. And uh, more, more often than not, they would ask me to sit down with them and, yeah, they would offer me food and drinks and, yeah, uh, to my heart's content. I, as much as I could eat and drink, they would be happy to supply that to me. And I was happy to oblige them and uh, partake in all the stuff that they had. So it was good times and in, every, in every way whatsoever. Well, so you're talking like you're, you're still a teenager when you did that. Yeah, I was uh, 17 years old until I was 18. And then when I got to be 18, I thought to myself, I've got to do something with myself other than just be this bum that I've turned into being. And I decided I'd go back to um, the United States and see about going to art school. Because everybody said to me that if my art is so good as it was, and I had never studied, that if I actually studied... I would be able to achieve a lot more and, uh, yeah, reach a higher level of uh, proficiency, yeah? So that's what I decided to do. I got in touch with my dad. No, sorry. And, uh, at that point, I decided I'm going to surprise everybody. So I saved up a bit of money. I got on a plane, and I flew back to the States, and I didn't tell anybody I was coming. Oh, wow. <laughs> they must have been really surprised. Um, yeah, they were shocked. <laughs> I remember the, for some reason in those days, things happened that now when I tell people about it, some people are thinking that I'm making this up, but I'm not. I remember flying out. I got a charter flight. I was on a charter flight to, um, no, I was on a commercial airline. I was on TWA. That was it, to Belgium, where I was going to hook up with a charter flight to Los Angeles. And when I got to Belgium, the charter flight company went out of business. So I had a ticket that I bought on a company that no longer existed. And I remember for two or three days sleeping at the airport, not knowing what's going to happen. And while I was in that situation, uh, there were a couple of hundred people next to me that were exactly in the same situation. Now, most of them were people that had jobs, that had families, um, that had deadlines. <laughs> while nobody knew that I was anywhere, coming anywhere, going anywhere, it didn't make a difference to me personally. But the people were very, very stressed out. And what finally happened was um, the an airline company, and I don't remember which one, had actually put us all up in the Holiday Inn in Brussels. And um, that turned out to be an interesting stay because we actually had to stay there for about two weeks until we got an airline company to agree to take us back to the, the States and essentially honor the tickets that we already had bought. <clears throat> now, while I'm staying in the Holiday Inn for roughly two weeks, 
on an all-expense-paid holiday. <laughs> I met a fellow that had just come in to go back to America uh, <laughs> from having spent six months in Morocco. <clears throat> and his name was Randy. That's all I can remember. I don't remember his surname. I don't even know if I ever asked him what his surname was. But Randy was a funny guy because he was a professional smuggler. Now, not only was he a professional smuggler by trade, but he was a funny guy by nature. He was a comedian, basically an, um, an amateur comedian. He used to crack everybody up and always had a big group of people around him. It could have been because of his jokes. It could have been because of all the hash that he had. And he had two kilos. Now, there wasn't much to do there except <laughs> take the hash and break it down into crumbs and mix it with a little bit of tobacco and roll it up into a big joint and slide it up and pass it around. And we did that for a couple of weeks and we had to finish it before he was to get on the plane because he knew by then that everybody knew about it and that if he were to uh, smuggle it out of Belgium, especially into America, he'd wind up in prison and he didn't want that to happen. So it was a very hazy two weeks at the Holiday Inn in Brussels, but I remember be, I remember it being enjoyable. Great <laughs> swimming pool too. <laughs> wow, what a, that that is a good story. So then you get back to the United States, and uh, what where did your life take you then? Uh, well, what I did was uh, yeah, I got to the airport and I. Um, I think I, I don't remember whether it was a shuttle bus or a taxi. I remember getting to my house, my dad's house in Encino, and knocking on the door, and my older brother, my, who's a year older than me, his name is Philip, who, by the way, is living in Arizona nowadays, working for Social Security and had his birthday um, yesterday. Yeah, he turned uh, 66, so... If, if Phil's listening, happy birthday, Philip. Anyway, he opens the door. I'm standing there in front of him. He hadn't seen me for like a little over two years. I hadn't cut my hair in that time. Um, I was wearing an old Israeli torn army shirt. That was the only shirt I had. I was wearing a pair of cut-off jeans and uh, some moccasins, which I really loved having. And they were like practically knee-high with the fringe, um, they, yeah, there was something something that looks like Sly Stone would be wearing during one of his concerts. So I was a sight to behold, and my brother <laughs> opens the door, and he asks me, yes, can I help you? And I go, yeah, I fell at home. And he goes, who are you? I go, I'm your brother, Robert. He goes, no, my brother Robert's living in Israel. And I said, not anymore. And finally it dawned on him that it was me. And he sort of like looked and he was just like totally puzzled, bewildered. And then he yells out to the rest of my family who might have been home somewhere in, inside the house going like, hey guys, come on out here. You're not going to believe who's here. Yeah, and I walked in. My dad was there. And the minute my dad saw me, he, he just recognized me immediately. He got very emotional, gave me a big hug and... Um, yeah, started crying, and it was a very, very emotional reunion, and uh, very nice, and 
I said to him, look, I'm back. I'd like to go to school. And he says, yeah, I'll help you with whatever you want. So the next thing I know, I'm living in San Francisco where my father had a business. I'm working for him part-time, and I'm going to the San Francisco Art Institute. Now, at the time, the San Francisco Art Institute was told to me to be a very high-level, high-class, prestigious art academy. And I wanted to study traditional classical painting because I used to do black and white work. I used to do pen and ink. I used to do pencil work. But I didn't know how to use paints at all, uh, especially oil paints. I knew nothing about how to oil paint. And I figured, okay, if I go to such an academy, I should be able to learn how to do that. And uh, after a few weeks of being in the school, I was told by one of the professors that I was studying with that I should um, do a sketch of a painting that I wanted to start working on. And I spent a couple of weeks just sketching out the theme of the painting. So it was quite an elaborate sketch. And in itself, today, I could show it as a piece in itself, as a finished piece, not having to do anything with painting it. But uh, the first thing the guy asked of me was, uh, he says to me, where did you study previously? And I said to him, I never studied. And he goes, he said, well, that's quite amazing that I'm able to draw as well as I was, considering the fact that I never studied. He said to me that I'm gifted, whatever that meant. And I said to him, well, okay, thanks for the compliments. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. <clears throat> I want to put a skin tone on the main figure, the central figure that I had drawn. And he went and started mixing up some paints on a, a, a palette and took a big brush and mixed it in the paint and basically went over to my canvas and just whack, smeared the whole the whole gob of paint that he had on the brush on the canvas, which kind of surprised me that he did that without asking me if it would be okay. So I was a bit annoyed. And when I saw the result of the paint that he put on the canvas, I got really annoyed because it wasn't anything that I wanted or I expected. Um, and he looks at me with his big smile on his face and he says to me, well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you just mixed up the paint and you put it on the brush and you smeared it on my canvas, I'm going to let that slide. I'm not even going to bother discussing that part of what you just did. But I said, I will talk about the color that you put on the skin of obviously a woman, that you can see there's a woman that I drew here. And I said, this is a skin color, but it's not the skin color of a woman. And he looked at me and he goes, well, it's the skin color of what? And I said, it's the skin color of a pink. <laughs> and he just stood there and he just was gobsmacked. He couldn't believe I had said that to him. And all the students sitting around watching this interaction between me and this guy, who was supposedly a very well-known a professional artist and esteemed professor of painting, they couldn't believe that I said that to him either. And he looked at me and he said, you might know something about drawing, but you know nothing about painting. <clears throat> and he threw the palette down on the floor 
the brushes that he had in his hand. He threw on the floor. He walked out to the front door of the studio, opened it, walked out, slammed the door behind him, and that was <laughs> that was it. And the students all ganged up on me. They started screaming, what did you do? Why did you tell him that? Why did you say that? I said, all you have to do is look at the canvas and look at that color and tell me, honestly, that is that's not the color of a pig. <laughs> and everybody said, Bob, even if that's the case, that's not something you should tell him. You should say to him. I said, but it's the truth. Why not? <laughs> anyway, the whole two hours went by and he never came back to class, the teacher. So I decided... I've got to do something about it. I went to the dean of students, and I had a meeting there and then with her. I don't remember her name. I remember his name, though. I'm not going to mention it. He remembers his name as well, so we both remember his name. Um, I think you should say, what's, what's his name, Bob? What's his name? Like, what, how old is he? You know, he's probably retired. He might, may not even remember the situation. Oh, I, I, I doubt that he'd be alive. At the, look, this was back in 1970, 71. At 71 it would be. So what's that, 40, 40 years ago, 40 some odd years ago, almost 50 years ago. Anyway, I sit with the dean. She tells me that that guy is a very well-respected artist in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. And I said, okay, I, I hear what you're saying to me, but does that, making him, does that make him a good teacher for painting? And she says, well, you know, you, when you hire somebody on his credentials and his reputation, you assume that they would know what they're doing. Uh, but she said to me, obviously something didn't gel with you. <clears throat> she goes, there's other teachers. You might want to try meeting with them and studying with them. And uh, she says to me, but this guy is supposedly the best. And I said, well, if he's the best, I don't want to meet with anybody else. I've decided since I'm able to draw, I'm going to study printmaking. And I decided I'd go into the printmaking departments, which I did. So I went to study lithography, the old-fashioned way, the hand, the hand lithograph doings, etching, and silkscreen, and I studied all those three vocations, and uh, yeah, I did some nice work while I was there. So I was, it was that was a good experience. But seeing that I'm not accomplishing anything painting-wise, um, and after I think about uh, a couple of semesters of the San Francisco Art Institute, I decided I wanted to go back to Israel and get back into teaching martial arts professionally and take it a little bit more seriously than I did the time before. So, save some money, and off I went. <laughs> that was back in 1973. I landed in Israel in 1973. And so, did, how did you yeah. go about yeah, so how did you go about getting a job then? So you're 73, and you're, you're, so then you just have to go on your credentials as teaching at the university, or did you start your own? Well, what happened was, when I was teaching at the university, simultaneously I was also doing private lessons in a village, uh, a Druze village, that's an Arab cult, an Islamic Arab cult, which has a secret religion, um, and they're called Druze. 
I had met a group of people in Haifa, and they, anyway, that's that's too long of a story to get into right now. They basically invited me to their village and set up the community center for me as a school. So I had that. I had all the students that participated in my classes there, as well as teaching at the university. I did that simultaneously. And that was at the uh, end, end days of me teaching the general. So when he left my instructions, um, yeah, I focused on the private students and the university students. So when I got back to Israel, it was basically making a few phone calls, letting some people know that I was back and I was looking to teach and going and hiring a um, community center and starting up some classes on my own, which is what I did. How long did that last? How long did your career as a uh, um, as a martial arts teacher last? Well, back then that was like um, my second trip back as an adult, my third trip back in total. It lasted until the war broke out, the 1973 Yom Kippur War mm -hmm. broke out right in the middle of me doing a class. I was uh, I had I had found a school in a small city north of Haifa called Tivon, which is about well today would be maybe a 25 30 minute car ride from Haifa eastward, and uh, I was able to hire the sports center the sports hall and I did my lessons there, and I had quite a large group of students. And, uh, yeah, and uh, what happened was, I remember, this was Yom Kippur. This is uh, the national holiday in Israel. I had rented an apartment. I was walking from my house to some friend's house because there was no public transportation on that day. Everything comes to a halt. I mean, nobody goes out. Everything's closed. No public transportation. The only thing you can really do is walk from wherever you are to somebody you know and hang out at their house and have a cup of coffee or something, which is what I was doing. I was walking down the street when all of a sudden I hear these sirens blaring. And I'm thinking to myself, what are these sirens blaring for? I didn't know what was going on. And a few minutes later, I noticed all the cars, all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of cars driving past me in every which direction. And everybody sitting in the cars is in a uniform. And I got to my friend's house, and my friend, uh, you know, they're all in a big uproar and all excited, and they heard, they, they're asking me, have you heard? <laughs> I'm going, have I heard what? My girl, my, the friend, the lady friend, she says to me at that point, she goes, we're, we're in a war. All, all the Arab countries have attacked us, and we're fighting for our lives. And I'm going, holy shit, I go, gee, in a couple of days I got another lesson to teach. What am I going to do now, you know? And, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a good time. It was a very, very bad time in Israel because for the first two or three weeks in 1973, the Arabs were really sticking it to Israel militarily. They were having a lot of success. They were, uh, yeah, they, they had gotten the upper hand in the war. And it was only a few weeks later that things got turned around. In the meantime, I went back to teach. All my uh, adult students had disappeared to reserve duties. 
I was only left with a bunch of kids. We had to put blankets over all the windows so there was no light emitting from the sports center to alert uh, the Syrian airplanes which were flying overhead quite frequently and dropping bombs. So I heard the bombs dropping in the foreground, in the background. Luckily for myself and everybody around me, uh, nothing happened to us locally. Although one of my students, um, yeah, he was one of the first to go up to the Golan Heights. And he and his uh, reserve army comrades, buddies, whatever, they were one of the first casualties of the Israeli war with Syria where a missile had hit their armored carrier, armored personnel carrier. And that was the end of him. And he was studying with me with his son. He had a nine-year-old son. He was in, his, I think he was 42 years old. They both came in to do lessons with me. Anyway, his father never came back from the war. Um, yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was a really, really crazy period. And it, everything went into a dive after the war, uh, economically, socially. Um, at that point, I saw that my school wasn't going to be doing as well as I was hoping that it would. So I decided I'd go back to the States to study again. Well, um, back and forth, back and forth between Israel and the United States. On the way, though, I stopped off in Germany because I had a German guy tell me if I landed in Germany, I would have a, a job teaching at his new club that he had opened up in Hamburg. So I got there. By the time I got there, the club was already running for about 10 months, and he found that uh, using his senior students as uh, assistant teachers was cheaper than hiring somebody like myself. So basically, the whole promise of all this work coming my way never eventuated. So I found myself stuck in Hamburg. I went to the academy there. They accepted me as a guest artist. So I was able to do lithographs while I was there, use the, their printing facility, uh, free of charge. So that was, that was nice. That was a bonus. And um, the guy that had the karate school, had he was married and his wife had a very nice lady friend who used to come in and watch me train and teach basically voluntarily free because nobody was paying me i was teaching a senior class the lady sort of like uh, asked me if i wanted to come out for a drink after class i said sure why not <laughs> as long as she was paying which she was happy to do next thing i know i'm living with her and uh, she says to me, oh, don't worry, you'll find work. You're a good teacher. The fact that it hasn't worked out here is not a big problem. Um, you'll, you'll get back on your feet. And, uh, yeah, that relationship lasted for about three months, but I didn't get any work in those three months. And I, I, I finally said, look, this enough's enough. I'm going to go back to the States. And she says to me, well, if you go back to the States, remember one thing. I'll never want to see you again if you come back to Germany. <laughs> I said, okay, that's a deal. <laughs> and I took off. She was very nice. I can't, I can't complain. She was very, very nice. And uh, it was a fun three months in Germany, all things considered. 
had I gotten the job as a martial arts instructor and I would have been able to support myself, would have been better, but it just wasn't to be, and I got myself back to the United States. Wow, so you're, are you still a teenager? How far have we gone in your life story here, Bob? Are you still, a, are you in your 20s yet? Well, early 20s. Um, yeah, I went around Los Angeles. I tried all the different karate teachers that were teaching the style of karate that I was doing at the time. It was traditional Japanese karate, Shotokan karate. So I went and uh, there was a very famous teacher uh, whose name is Oshima. I went to his school. Uh, another in Nishiyama in downtown L.A. He had a big school, famous teacher as well. Went there. Uh, Kabuta, Takabuta, who was uh, uh, also an instructor. He had a school on Hollywood Boulevard. I went to study there. Um, what seemed to be the case, every school that I walked into, being a black belt myself, I was looked upon as being like an outsider who's come in to antagonize everybody and to prove something. So basically the best of the group of students in the schools decided <clears throat> they're going to gang up on me and teach me a lesson. So it was, it was very confrontational in all of these schools. It was a very confrontational environment, which just went on and on and on. There was no camaraderie. There was no friendliness to this at all. It was like the old feudal samurai where you get uh, a renegade samurai wanting to join another group and the, the group saying, we're going to show this guy that we're boss and we're going to teach him that we know better everything and then maybe later we'll consider about accepting him. And I basically had a gut full of that kind of an approach and that kind of a mentality. And I kept asking around, is there anybody that like can teach karate without having this uh, weird um, Japanese mentality of uh, we're the top and anybody who is from the outside is beneath us. The, the Japanese, for some, especially the one, oh, I found this to be pretty prevalent everywhere throughout the world. They tend to have a very uh, inflated superiority complex. And where they can't prove that they're capable of having that, they do. Anyway, so asking around, finally I got some info about a Hawaiian fellow who was out in the boonies in L.A. somewhere, out in East Los Angeles very, very far from where I was living, who was teaching. And I went out to meet the guy, and his name was Ed, Ed Hamili, and he was uh, reputedly a seventh-degree black belt in Shotokan karate, um, quite well-respected. He had a reasonably large school. He was uh, affiliated with Ed Parker. Ed Parker was uh, one of the noted martial artists who was promoting in Los Angeles, putting on big tournaments, friends with Bruce Lee, uh, movie stars. Um, let me think uh, for a moment. Uh, yeah, okay, Ed Parker was also teaching Elvis karate. And my teacher, Ed, Ed Hamili and Ed Parker were like buddy-buddy. So anyway, that got me into also participating in a tournament that... Ed Parker promoted in Long Beach a very famous uh, tournament called the International. Um, 
Yeah, and um, basically um, studied with Ed for give or take about a year and uh, decided again that for some reason my calling is to go back to Israel now that things have calmed down from the war and everything and see about opening up, a, getting back into teaching, opening up a school and doing my artwork um, on the side. Yeah. So off to Israel I went. <laughs> Again. Again. Third time, professionally speaking, I went back. Again, coincidences being what they are, when I got there, um, I found some of my old students. I called up some of my old students. They were said, yeah, we're, we're happy to study with you. Just let us know where and when. And uh, within a few weeks, I started getting a phone call from some guy who wanted to meet with me, but I didn't know who he was. And I just basically kept putting it off, ignoring the guy, until finally... I gave in and said, okay, let's have a meeting. I don't know what this is all about. I don't know who you are, but we'll have a meeting. And I met this guy, and it turns out that he was based in Sweden. He was an Israeli guy. He was a security operative working for the embassy in Sweden. And he studied karate there, and he came back to Israel with a dream of opening up his own school. And when he came back to Israel, he settled in Haifa, which was his hometown, and he opens up his school, and he hears from everybody that knew anything about karate or had studied at one point or another with somebody, have you heard about Bob Batlin? <laughs> so he kept hearing my name, and all of a sudden, a few weeks after, afterwards, I show up. So he calls me up, and he says, look, I heard your name. Uh, you're quite a well-known instructor, having been here in the past. He goes, I've got a small group of students. I don't want to lose them all to you, and I heard you're looking for a place to teach. He goes, why don't we open up a school together? I said, I got no money. He says, okay, well, that, that problem solved. I've got the money. You've got the reputation. Let's combine forces and see what we can do with this. And um, he got a friend of his who was a judo teacher to get involved with the two of us, meaning we turned into a threesome. And we went out and opened up uh, a private commercial karate school in Haifa, in the mid part of the city. Haifa's on a mountain, so you've got the top of the mountain, you've got the mid part of the city, and you've got downtown. We had found a nice location in the mid part, and we opened up a private karate school. So before you know it, um, yeah, I had 600 students. Wow, that's a... <laughs> That's, you've come quite a ways to finally get to a large uh, cadre, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, for uh, your your classes. Yeah, while all this is going on, I'm still doing my artwork, and I'm showing my artwork to people, selling a few pieces here and there, uh, and actually even organized an exhibition at that time in Israel, found a small community center, did an exhibition, took a piece to a very well-known private uh, gallery, in fact, probably one of the top three galleries in Israel at the time called Goldman's, and he liked my work, and he says, yeah, he says, look, leave me what you brought in, he put it on the wall, and he says, bring me some more stuff when you have, and I said to him, okay, well, so that was a step in the right direction, so things were starting to move forward. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and now you're, uh, so you're in Israel and this is, uh, again, probably what you're in your twenties, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, getting, getting up there, my, my late twenties, I believe, um, the school that I ran, by the way, oh, I had a very lovely uh, student, female student, come in to study with me, and it wound up that we got along so well with each other, I had a small little room in the uh, school, on the, uh, out in the side of the school. My, my, it was basically my house. So I was living in my, my own karate school, and uh, yeah, this young lady, her name was Nava, she decided to join me. So she came and spent a lot of time with me. So we were basically living together. And then from the past, a former girlfriend of mine who was living in Holland had come to Israel for a visit. And we met up with each other. And she asked me, what am I doing? And I said, well, I'm teaching karate and I'm organizing this and this and that and I'm doing artwork. And she goes, well, with your artwork, are you doing anything professionally. And I said, well, so-so. She goes, why don't you come to Holland and do what you're doing here, there, because there you have a much bigger audience in every respect, much much more affluent, um, have people that have uh, an appreciation of art, um, as well as martial arts. And she says, look, come to Holland. I've got a big house. You and Nava can come. Stay with us as our guests free of charge until you find your own place and you get some income. No problems, no pressure, no worries. You're welcome. Wow, so, tough to pass that up. Months, well, a few months later, uh, actually it was about a year later, I said to another, why don't we go to Holland and see what it's like? So we did. <laughs> yeah, when I got to Holland, the first thing I did was look for a karate school to teach. So I went to the uh, president of the Karate Association, who was teaching uh, Shotokan Karate in his school. His name was Bonche. He was the, uh, the president of the national organization. And he was a businessman. He, wasn't, he used to be, a, he used to be a, uh, one of the better middleweight judo champions in his day. But he had already become an old man when I had gone to Holland. And he was just basically running a school as a business alongside some restaurants that he had. And... Um, yeah, he told me, come to the school and let's see what you can do. And uh, when I got to the school, he had me face off against the guy that was teaching, the, his number one uh, person in the school. And we had a little sparring session. And I think I proved to the owner of the school that I was very capable. And he says to me, well, if you want to, you can come in and we'll work out a schedule that alongside with the other guy, whose name was Max. You both can teach him. But when Max heard that this guy Bunch had given me a job as a teacher, he got really offended and he quit. So I got, I got all the students. Yeah, and then I ran around and found other locations and started up some classes on my own. Um, and within a year's time, give or take, I had five schools in Holland. You were working at five schools? Five different schools. I was traveling to Delft. I had a school in Delft I was teaching. Wassenaar, Leiden, Schäveningen, and Den Haag. So altogether five schools, yeah. 
So wow. a couple of lessons in each school per week. I was I was very busy. I was very busy, but uh, quite happy. Yeah, I, I really loved Holland. Holland was great. Um, and I, was, I stayed there for six years. In the meantime, now then I had gone back to Israel to get married because her mother was not happy that her daughter was living with somebody in Holland who wasn't and who wasn't married to her. Okay. So I said to her mom, I said, look, if you're so keen on your daughter getting married, you organize the wedding and I'll show up as the groom. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably the best way to go about it. <laughs> so that's what happens. You organize the wedding and me and Nava traveled back to Israel. We got married. And after the wedding, uh, yeah, we went back to Holland. And a couple of years later, our son, my firstborn, was born there. His name is Rush, R-U-S-H. He was born in Holland, and we stayed in Holland for a year. And after six years of being there and Rush being a year old, the weather was getting to me. It, Holland's beautiful, but the winter there lasts for about eight, nine months out of the year. It's probably similar to the northwest of the United States or Canada. It's <laughs> a very, very long, long winter. And myself, having been raised and growing up in Los Angeles, Southern California, in Israel, not exactly places known for their winters. <laughs> so it, it was, it was uh, quite difficult for me to adjust to Holland uh, weather-wise. And when I had the opportunity to go back to the States, I decided, uh, yeah, why not? The opportunity was this, that my teacher, my karate teacher, who I kept in touch with, Ed Hamili, I brought him to Israel a number of times for some seminars, and also I brought him to uh, Holland a couple of times to do some seminars. So the last time that he was in Holland, he said, Bob, I want to open up a big sports center in L.A., and I'd like you to come back to L.A., and I'd like you to run the martial arts side of it while I run the administrative side of the gym. And I said, okay, well, give me a few months and I'll be there. And a few months later, I arrived in Los Angeles and I went to Ed and I said, I'm back. So when you're ready to start rocking and rolling and getting this thing off the ground, let me know. In the meantime, he, he had organized for me to work for his son as a courier because I needed some cash to come in um, as a courier delivering uh, documents all over Los Angeles. And it was basically on a, a commission basis with his son who had a very large courier company. He had about 100 drivers. I was one of the 100. And uh, yeah, for a year there, I was running around Los Angeles delivering documents to uh, offices, business centers of all sorts, going back every, every uh, once or twice a week to Ed school to teach the advanced class. He had me teaching, but nothing was moving forward in regard to the school that he had promised that he was going to open. Mm -hmm. So a year went by, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, something's not right. Yeah. I went and had a meeting with Ed. I said, Ed, when are you going to open up the school? And he says, Oh, things have changed. My situation is such. He didn't go into too many details. He just said he wasn't going to do it any longer. And I said, okay. And I said, do you mind if I go out and open up a school of my own somewhere, far enough away not to be competing with you, but 
enough where I can get some private students because I'd love to be teaching rather than driving around delivering documents for your son as a courier. Yeah. And he says, oh, okay, I don't have a problem with that. So I went around for a few months looking for a location, and I found a nice place in the foothills of Los Angeles um, about 30, 40 miles away from Ed's school, mm -hmm. somewhere between uh, north of uh, Pasadena. I don't, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, suburbs up there. But anyway, there was a very affluent neighborhood, developing area up in the mountains, in the hills, no martial arts school whatsoever. And I thought there would be an ideal location to open up one. So I found the location. I had everything ready ready to go. The only thing I did not have was enough money yeah. to open up the school. Yeah. So I went to uh, Ed and I said to Ed, look, I'm going to ask a favor of you and Stephen, your son, who is doing exceptionally well with his courier business, to see about investing some money in a martial arts school, which will, in essence, also enhance your business because the gradings, the uniforms, and everything, all the peripheral uh, elements of running a martial arts school, I said, Ed, you're welcome to receive the windfall, the financial windfall of all of that. I'm, I'm happy just to get the money of the uh, students paying for an instructor and leave it at that until things pick up and we see where we stand. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay. So I spoke to Stephen and I said, Stephen, let's organize a meeting where we can sit down and talk about you investing some money into the school. And I'd given him a rough sum and, his, and Stephen was happy to oblige. He said, yeah. He said, if that's the kind of money we're talking about, let's go ahead and do it. And he says, but let's have a meeting, the three of us, my dad, you and I. And we had organized a meeting in a restaurant in Hollywood, and me and Stephen arrived, and his dad uh, didn't show up, and we waited a couple of hours. And after a couple of hours of his dad not showing up, we realized he's not going to show up, period. And he wasn't answering his, uh, in those days we had pagers. We didn't have mobile phones. Yeah. So we used to pay somebody and have them hopefully call you back on a, pay, on a landline, yeah? Um, anyway, Ed, Ned never showed up. We didn't hear anything. And later that evening, I drove to Ed's school. I went. I drove out there. He was in um, a, a suburb called Temple City, uh, which is very, very far from the center of Los Angeles. But anyway, I went out there, and I walked into Ed's office, and I go, Ed, what happened? Why didn't you show up to the meeting? And he goes, oh, Bob, look, I've been having a think about this. And I'm not really enthusiastic about you opening up a school close by. And I said, well, first of all, it's not going to be close by. It's going to be 30 or 40 miles away. And I said, what's the problem? And he goes, oh, I've got a feeling you're trying to uh, steal all my students from me. <laughs> I said, Ed, I've been dealing with you for 11 years off and on now. I brought you out to Israel five times to do seminars where you've made a lot of money for doing that, brought you out, out to Holland four times, also you receiving a lot of money for doing that, why would you be thinking that I would come to the States on your invitation to open up a school to steal your students? I'm thinking, I'm thinking about working alongside with you rather than doing anything like that. And I said, 
but if this is your attitude and it's, this is something you firmly believe, I said, I don't think we've got much more to talk about and I'm going to be walking out of here and I'll never ever be coming back. You'll never ever see me again. And I walked out. And that was the end of my association with It's too bad that he had that attitude about it. Look, he was getting old. He was in his uh, probably mid-60s at that point in time. Uh, I think his health was failing him. I think uh, his age, his physical condition, something must have affected his mind. And uh, what can you do when people start getting old and get getting senile? They get weird. He got weird. And, you know, when he said that I'm out there to steal his students, I'm going like, holy crap. I mean, I don't believe of all people he would be the one telling me this, saying this to me. Mm -hmm. So that was the end of our relationship. So then you're, you're sitting there in Los Angeles, uh, still working as a courier. Uh, did you try to do something else then with your own, try to get your own business yeah, going? Yeah, well, what I did was I opened up the newspaper looking for a different job straight away. And <laughs> okay. I found a pharmacy uh, that was actually paying a salary rather than commission and paying, a, and paying a mileage fee for the use of your own car. And I did the arithmetic that <clears throat> if I were to work for that company, I would probably come out way ahead. So I decided I'm going to go try, and I made an appointment, and I went and I had an interview with the owner of the pharmacy. It was a, uh, a wholesale pharmacy that dealt with convalescent homes, small hospitals, home patients. Um, yeah, and they were in an industrial site in Marina del Rey in Los Angeles. And I went and spoke to the owner, and I brought all my credentials with me, which mostly had to do with martial arts and a few write-ups about uh, some uh, exhibitions that I've done in the past, fine arts, and I brought all this stuff with me, and I put it in front of the table of the guy that owned the company, and he's looking through everything, and it was quite an impressive book that I had. And he's saying to me, oh, he says, it looks like you've really done a lot, and you've been everywhere, and don't you think you're overqualified for this job? Because it was base pay, it was like starting pay as the lowest of the low, driving and delivering medication throughout Los Angeles. I said, at the moment, I'm making my living driving for my teacher's son. I'm working on a commission basis, and I think that if I'm getting, getting a mileage fee plus an hourly wage, I would do well working for your company. So just all I'm asking is give me a chance. If you see within a week I'm not up to the standards, of what you expect a delivery driver to do for you, let me know. I'll be happy to go elsewhere. No problems, but I'll be very, very thankful if you'll offer me uh, and give me this job. And he said, uh, well, okay, under the circumstances, he says, I he says to me, I really think you're overqualified. And I said, okay, leave it be, you know. Well, let, let's, let things fall where they may. I'll, I'll be happy to come into work whenever. He says, you can start tomorrow. So he had the manager of the division train me. And the guy used to take me around with him to the different facilities and gradually introduced me to the system, the locations, and how we went about doing what we had to do. And after a week of doing that, um, yeah, I was on my own and I was 
doing what everybody else did. There were five drivers, the guy that was managing us, the team leader. Um, I believe, yeah, he was one of the, it was five of us all together. So him for me being one of the four regular drivers. And uh, a month later, the owner called me into his office for a meeting. And I thought to myself that I must have screwed up somehow. I didn't know what, what was what was going on. I didn't know why we were having a meeting. And I walk in there, and the guy says to me, his name was Sid. He was a really nice guy, a uh, bit of a businessman, but a nice guy. He says to me, Bob, he says, Sid, I'd like to talk to you. And I think to myself, <laughs> I'm going to be looking for a new job. <laughs> he says to me, how is it that I'm doing twice as much as anybody else? And I'm going, twice as much what? He says, twice as many runs, getting the stuff out there twice as quickly, above and beyond what anybody else has done in the past or is doing presently, including the manager. I said, I have no idea. And the guy says, well, I'm really happy with the job you're doing. I'm going to give you a small raise. And he says, keep doing what you're doing. And we'll talk about it again in the future. And I said, okay, thanks a lot. So I walked out of there thinking, you know, I'd really scored in so much of keeping my job, getting a raise, being complimented. And um, yeah, things continued. A month later, I got called again into the office. I thought to myself, okay, now I must have done something wrong because just a month earlier, I got a raise, I got complimented and whatnot. Uh, I sat down, uh, Sid says to me, yeah, Bob, we're having a, a similar meeting to the previous one. I said, okay, uh, what do you want to talk about? And he goes, not much. He goes, I like the job you're doing, and I want to give you a raise. I said, you just gave me one. He says, I'm going to give you another one. I said, okay, sounds good to me. He says, okay, from now on, you'll be getting so much more per hour. And I've been clocking in, getting, sending him my uh, mileage reports, getting paid for that as well. I was making nearly twice as much as I was making with the previous company. So I was pretty happy about that. Um, Nava, my wife, was sitting at home in Silver Lake. We had rented a house. Uh, we had a baby girl born to us. Um, Roxanne, she was born in Los Angeles. She went into the hospital a day after she was born. There was a huge earthquake in LA. The building was shaking, so uh, Nava's mother came out from Israel to stay with us to keep an eye on everything while I was working. But anyway, everything passed well. Everything was good. Nava came home with a baby girl. I got a raise, and life went ahead. That's a pretty good chapter month right number, there. Yeah, month number three kicks in, and I get called to the office again. <laughs> and I think to myself, okay, what's going on this time? And I walk in and Sid says to me, Bob, look, we don't have uh, an explanation, and you're not willing to shed light on what it is that you're doing, but we're very happy with your performance. You're doing better than anybody. We'd like to offer you the management position of the delivery service of the pharmacy. And I'm saying, yeah, but you've got so-and-so who's the manager. And he goes, well, unfortunately, we're going to be getting rid of him because he's not performing as he should. 
And I said, well, that's not good news. And they said, yeah, but we're offering you the job if you want it. And I said, well, I can't say no to that. I, I, I would like it and I need it. And they said, well, to be a manager, you've got to make some tough calls. And I go, What's, what do I need to do? He says, you need to dismiss the guy that's currently holding that position. I said, no, said, man, that's not fair. He goes, life's not fair. That's what you got to do. So you stand as a driver or we put you in as the manager, but you've got to tell the current manager that he's being transferred to strictly being a driver. He says, look, the thing about it is I'm going to make it easy for you. We're leaving him at his current pay, which was way beyond and above what the, the normal drivers were making. So I said to him, I said, well, if you put me in that position, I've got no choice. I'll take care of it. I'll do it. So I invited the manager to a meeting at a restaurant right outside the pharmacy. It was like a couple of buildings down from a, a drive a drive through, a drive-in on Sepulveda Boulevard. Um, across the street from the uh, Forest Lawn Cemetery. <laughs> it had a great, a great location out of the windows. You were looking at headstones. <laughs> so I'm sitting with, with the guy there and I said, look, I got some good news and I got some bad news. And he's going, yeah, well, tell me whatever. I said, the good news is you're staying on with your job and you're getting paid the same money. I said, the bad news is the company's decided to put in a new manager. And he looks at me and he goes, who? And I said, uh, me. <laughs> and he got really, really pissed off, got really upset. He started screaming. I mean, really raising his voice. And we're sitting in a restaurant, you know, with public people all around us. He says to me, why the fuck would anybody put you as the manager? I trained you. I taught you everything you know. And if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be working. Blah, blah, blah. And he's, uh, I said, hey, man, I said, look, don't make this harder than it's going to be, than it is. I said, you're not being deducted wages. You're not being deducted the amount. You're, you, you're going to continue doing what you're doing at your, at your pace. The only thing is you're not responsible to talk to the other drivers. I'm going to be doing that. Fucking hell, I'm going to go talk to... I said, if you want to go talk to the owner, you're welcome to. He'd rather you not come in and uh, interfere with whatever he's doing, whatever he's working on, because he's not going to change his mind. I'm telling you right now. But the guy wouldn't hear about it. So he went back into the office yelling and shouting and screaming and gave the guy an ultimatum that either he keeps his job or he walks out. And he was told to walk out, so he walked out. That's pretty much anyway, what you do with a, a demotion. You either take the demotion or you walk out. That's, uh, that's you know, well, pretty general. Look, I mean, I, I felt pretty shitty about the whole thing. I didn't think it was the fairest thing to put me in that position. Yeah, definitely not. But I, I, I definitely had to take advantage of the opportunity the thing, though, was that within a year's time, from five drivers, I got the roster up to 11. And from 15 um, patient care facilities, the company had gone up to 30. They had nearly doubled their business. 
Now, when you're talking about pharmaceuticals, you're talking about a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So the company made a lot of money on the fact that they were able to rely on the deliveries getting to where they needed to without having any dramas. And, uh, yeah, I, I, take, I take some credit in having achieved that and doing that for them and having achieved that. And this is all just because you didn't get the job as a karate instructor. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Anyway, so one of these uh, four years go by, well, three and a half years go by, give or take, I get a letter from one of my ex-students from Holland who had moved back to Australia. He was born in Australia, he came to study with me in Holland. And he had moved back there and he had opened up a big gym. And he, he sends me a letter, he says, Bob, come visit Australia, come see my gym. He says, if you like what you see and you want to move out here, I'm going to help sponsor you. Um, but this time with very basic conditions, no salary, no, just some legal paperwork that he would help me with. And I said, okay. Well, he said, look, I'm, I'm looking for a new place to try something new. I'm getting a little bit tired of running around Los Angeles delivering <laughs> medication basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That was the, my job description. If anybody that did a delivery no matter what time of the day broke down, I would be the guy they called to come help him out, to take care of the car, the breakdown, and get the medication to where it needed to be. Wow. So it was, it was very stressful, but I got paid very well for that. I'm not complaining, but I decided during my uh, annual holiday to come to Australia to see what it's like. And in 1987, yeah, I took two weeks. I told Nava, I said, Nava, look, I'm going on my own. We really can't afford the whole family to go. It's too expensive. It's too far away. I'm going to go and I'm going to see what it's like. And when I come back, we'll see what happens. So I went and I, I spent three days in Sydney and um, eight, nine days on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Sydney is New South Wales, about a thousand kilometer distance between the Gold Coast and Sydney. Sydney's a big city very similar to Los Angeles in so much of too many cars, too much traffic. That was something I wanted to get away from. Mm -hmm. The Gold Coast was the exact opposite. It was a small town, uh, probably 300,000 residents, some high-rise uh, condominiums on the beach, resorts. It was, um, it's, it, it was and it still is Australia's holiday destination. When people in Australia want to have a holiday, they come to the Gold Coast for a holiday. And this is the place where my friend had opened up a gym. Until so you moved there, you and then uh, so you, here you are, you, you fly all the way out there for your, your little holiday, and what was the situation like there? <laughs> well, my friend says to me, Bob, look, I've got the gym here, a huge aerobics room, which you only had like a couple of lessons a week. For the remainder of the time, it stood free. It stood empty. Nobody was using it for anything. He says, if you come here, he says, free of charge, you can start your classes. When you get to the point where you're making enough of an income where you can support yourself, we can sit down and talk about you paying some rent. But up until that point, I'm not going to charge you anything. And I said, well, if that's the case, I'll, I'll take that on your word, and you stick to it and I'll be back here as soon as I can. In the meantime, he um, sponsored me legally as 
somebody who was giving me a job and he filled out all the paperwork. I paid for everything, but he filled out all the paperwork. We submitted it to the immigration department. I had to go get some uh, police checks from Israel and from Holland, having lived there for years, submitted to the Australian uh, embassy in Los Angeles. Everything got cleared. It took a while, though. Instead of taking just strictly three months, it took a year and three months. And the year was because the government in Israel held up on the police report for a, an additional year. I don't know why it took so long, but they finally gave it a year and three months after I applied for it, instead of the normal three months, which it should have taken. Anyway, that's what happens when you have a lot of bureaucracy. They, everybody's <laughs> got a reason for doing things slowly. Um, yeah, and when we got the okay to move to Australia, <clears throat> I went back. I went back to work, of course, and I went and had a meeting with the owner, um, who was a lady who was part owner at the time I was hired. She had taken over the company as a whole, and had had bought out the fellow, so she was running it exclusively, um, and. Um, I went into a meeting with her in the morning, um, telling her that I had some news, and I said to her, uh, I'm moving, I'm giving you notice. In a couple of months, I'm moving to Australia. So I'm giving you a couple of months' notice. And she thought I was bluffing. The first thing she asked me is, why Australia? And I said, because it's beautiful. She goes, there's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing there are can kangaroos, nothing but kangaroos. Okay. I said, Eileen, have you been to Australia? She goes, no, why would I want to? That's what, that was her answer to me. Why would I want to go? That was her attitude. At the time, people were pretty ignorant about Australia being what it was. Not everybody, but a lot of people. This was the time that Paul Hogan started making, I'll throw a shrimp on the Barbie for your commercial. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Before that, nobody knew anything about Australia other than it was on the other side of the world. So she starts holding her head with her hands going, oh, my God, don't tell me you're serious. What am I going to do? Who's going to take over the delivery division? You're such a good manager. She goes, look, if this is a ploy for a raise, I'm going to raise you $250 a week on top of what you're getting paid right now. I said, Eileen, I'm not asking for more money. I'm just giving you notice that somebody else will have to take over my position. I am leaving. I am going to live in another country, a different continent. And she goes, okay, Bob, that's it. I'm doubling what I just said, $500 a week more. I said, Eileen, I'm not asking for any more money, and more money will not keep me here. I want to go live in Australia. She goes, okay, I'll give you shares of the company. <laughs> I said, it's not going to help. She goes, okay. She says, this is my final offer, Bob. Listen to me. Listen carefully. I'm going, I'm listening, Eileen. She goes, a thousand a week. I'm going, whoa, I'm tempted, but I'm not going to say yes to that. I'm giving that a miss. I'm moving to Australia. And I'm giving you a couple of months' notice. And she goes, Oh, my God, what am I going to do? Where am I going to find a new manager? I said, Eileen, I said, I'm going to ask you a question. 
and I appreciate everything that you're willing to do for me right now to keep me here. Have I ever let you down in all the years that I've been working for you? And she goes, no. She goes, you're the best manager I've ever had, period. And I said, okay. And what, what is my responsibility? To foresee a problem, resolve, take care of the problem so it doesn't become a problem. So everything runs smoothly. Has everything been running smoothly? She goes, yeah, knock on wood. Let's hope it stays that way. And I said, Eileen, it's going to stay that way. And she goes, how are you going to do that? What are you going to do for me? I said, in the last three months, I've been training one of the drivers to take over my position. And I haven't said anything to anybody, only to him. And she goes, you've kept that information from me? I said, yes. And from the other drivers? I said, yes. But everything's been working out fine. There's been no problems, no misses on any of the deliveries, no problems whatsoever. She goes, yeah, you're right about that. And she goes, well, tell me now, who is it? And I said, it's the last guy that I hired. She goes, you're going to put in charge the last guy that was hired here as a driver. I said, yeah. And she goes, how are you going to manage that without all the other drivers accepting that? And I said, leave it to me. I've taken care of things until now. I've done it pretty well. Believe me, I'll put this uh, across and I'll, I won't have any dramas. And she says, this I got to see. So I had a meeting with all the drivers the following week. I got all the drivers together on the on a Sunday evening, which was a work night, but it was a slow work night. I told everybody's got to come in for a group meeting. And when I told everybody that I'm leaving, they're like, oh, well, good on you, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. But <clears throat> who's going to take care of the, who's going to be the manager? And I said, what are you guys? And they're all looking around at each other, going like, what's this all about? And I said, okay, anybody care to guess? They were all stuck. Nobody, nobody said anything. And I said, okay, the guy down at the end, whose name is Moses, has been working here now for three months. I'm putting him in charge, and he's going to be the new manager. And then all of a sudden, everybody started yelling at me. Why and what and this and this. No, and I've been here longer, and I've been there, and I've got seniority, and they all came across with a hundred different reasons as to why he should not be the manager, and they should be. And I said, okay, guys, look, we're, I knew this was going to happen, so what I've been doing is I've been keeping a diary for the last three months, and I'm going to take it out now, and I'm going to open up the pages, and we're going to start at 30 days, uh, sorry, at 90 days going back when Moses came to work for us. And I went, okay, so-and-so, you had an extra delivery to do, which you told me you couldn't do on that day because you had this meeting and you had this to do and this and this and that. And who took over that assignment? Moses. And I started going down the pages, one by one, listing everybody who copped out on me with excuses for not having done something when I asked them to, something extra. And who did the job? Moses. And by the time I ran like a couple of weeks' worth of assignments, nobody was talking. Everybody had quieted down. Everybody had shut up. Nobody was disgruntled to the point of voicing an opinion. And I said, Moses did everything. He's proven that he's the guy. He's going to get the job. If anybody has a problem when I leave, you talk to him about it because I don't want to hear anything, and you've got no excuses for letting me listen to crap which you know is crap. End of story. We're just going to sail through this period, this transition period, 
nice and smooth. And that's exactly what we did. And I asked Moses to do me one favor for putting him in the position that I put him in. Because mm -hmm. I said to him, I took him, I took him out of his uh, cousin's garage. He was working as a mechanic cleaning engine parts in a garage in Hollywood where I used to service my pickup. And one thing I noticed about this guy Moses, no matter how uh, slack it was as far as work went, he, he was always busy. He was always doing something, cleaning something. I said to myself, this is the kind of guy that I want working for me. And when I told him about the job that I did and moving to Australia and positioning him instead of me, I said, there's one condition. And he goes, yeah, how much? <laughs> I said, it's not a money issue. He says, man, I got a big German shepherd. I love him to death. I want you to take him and take care of him. I don't want to take him to Australia. They're going to put him in quarantine for six months. I can't do it to this dog. I love him. You promise me you take care of this dog, and I promise you I'll go to bat for you, and I'll do everything I possibly can that you get this job. And that's exactly what happened. He got the job. He took care of my dog. <clears throat> we came to Australia. I opened up my classes. A year went by. My mother passed away in Los Angeles three days before my older brother was getting married. Oh, Everybody wow. but me was there. So, but I decided that my mother passing away, my brother getting married, I've got to get there. I decided I'll get on a plane. I took my son. We both flew out to Los Angeles. Um, while I was in Los Angeles, I went to the pharmacy. I walked in. I walked into Eileen's office. She sees me. She's shocked. First thing she says to me, she goes, what are you doing back here, Bob? I'm going, came in to say hello. Is that okay? Ah, she goes, by all means, of course. Very nice of you. I said, how are things here? She goes, couldn't be better. Everything's running smooth. I said, how's Moses doing? Fantastic. Everything's hunky-dory. I go outside. I see Moses there. I go, yo, how are things? He goes, okay, what are you doing back here? He's thinking I came back on one of my job back. I said, look, man, it's a long story. Just wanted to find out how the, how the dog is. He says, come on over to the house, and you can see him. And that evening, I, I drove out to the house somewhere in the valley. He had bought a house. He had bought a new pickup. He had a nice backyard where the dog was running around, happy as can be. And by the way, Moses did all of this being illegally illegal and undocumented in America. Wow. <laughs> Just like just that I throw that in. Seeing now that the business is out of business, nobody knows where he is, what he's doing, or anything else about him. But, you know, um, I'm not going to get into a political thing, but some people that get into America, that want to come and make a, a better life for themselves, no matter how they do it, they succeed in doing it, you got to give those people credit and congratulate them for doing it. And in his case, I had to give him a lot of credit for doing what he did and succeeding as well as he did. And the dog was really, really happy. I was happy too, very happy that the dog was taken care of. And uh, yeah, after a couple of weeks, uh, we came back to Australia. Yeah, it doesn't matter like you're talking about uh, undocumented immigrants. It doesn't matter who you are as long as it's all about that hard work. You know, uh, good help is hard to find. And if you're good help, people are glad to have you, you know. Um, like it was my dad who told me, he says, if you ever want a job, you go in any place and you'll say, I'll do anything. I'll scrub the toilets. I'll just keep me busy. And if you're busy all the time, you should have a job there all the time. 
Well, I agree with that, and uh, it's it's very unfortunate at the moment. Politically speaking, what's going on with America, that immigrants have become a scapegoat, being blamed by a lot of people for causing problems which is of no fault of their own. Um, Australia pretty much is backing the United States with their policies as well. A lot of people in Australia disagree with the government. Um, Australia has a small population. It's a huge country. A lot of people believe that Australia should accept more immigrants. I'm believing that more immigrants should come here legally, any which way they can. The people here, they get on boats. I mean, in Australia, they cross a border. I understand that's dangerous. But here in Australia, people get on fishing boats, mostly from Indonesia, and they sail the oceans, the wide open oceans, trying to make it to Australia. First of all, it takes a lot of guts to do that in the best case scenario. And I reckon if somebody is willing to do it that way and they're succeeding, they should be given the opportunity to settle here. Um, look, there's always the problem of not knowing who's coming. Okay, I realize that. But the people, the bad people that are going to come, who are going to do it anyway, and they're going to get in, is a small, small minority compared to all the people that have a justification for wanting to come here, make a better life, both here and both to the United States. I think they should receive as much support as possible. So that's my two cents worth of politics <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> when I get elected to a uh, position of power, I can do something about it other than just give my two cents worth. All right. Yeah, that's about uh, that's about all we can do right now is just two cents. Until they elect me king, everything's going to be just the same. <laughs> After coming back to Australia, I got involved in um, the commercial side of martial arts. I was teaching. I had opened up my own school. I had a small group of private students. Um, but what I started doing was promoting tournaments because I was also doing security work. Uh, I was working as a bouncer in a nightclub here on the Gold Coast. You were a bouncer? And yeah, believe it or not, I was. I was nearly 40 years old. Um, I'm not embarrassed to say this. I'm five foot seven, or at least I was. Maybe <laughs> I've lost an inch. I'm down maybe to five foot six and a half. But anyway, the only thing that I had going for me was the fact of all my years in martial arts as a trainer, a practitioner, a competitor. I knew how to take care of myself. I was capable of, uh, yeah, of dealing pretty well with uh, a, a physical altercation, or let's be blunt about it, about a fight. If, if I got into a fight, I would, I would be the one kicking ass, mm -hmm. not the other way around. And one of my students from the school, he was the guy that enticed me to get into security. He says, Bob, why don't you come work with us guys? I said, doing what? Security. I said, no, no, that's not for me because I've never done it, number one. I'm too old. Um, I don't really need to be doing this financially speaking. Not that I'm rich, but I'm comfortable. He says, look, man, for you it's going to be a piece of cake. You get five, five hours a night. You hear the best bands in Australia. They come through our venue. They perform. You stand right next to them. 
stage, you're at the front of the stage looking at the crowd, just making sure nobody gets crazy. And if somebody does, all you got to do is just grab them and escort them out to the front door. We'll take care of it from there, whatever. You'll have, you'll have a blast. And he eventually kept nagging me until he convinced me to go try doing it. And after three months of him nagging, I finally did it. And the first night that I went to work there, it was a big, big venue. It would hold about uh, 3,000 people capacity, two floors, big club, big club. And, uh, yeah, that's where all the rock groups in Australia who were doing their national tours would stop off on the Gold Coast to perform. Where, where is this? What's the name uh, it of was, it? It used to be called the Playroom. And unfortunately, about 10, 15 years ago, it was demolished. It went out of business, and they demolished the building. It was sitting on a prime location as a national park right by a river, which is called the Telebudra River. And it's a beautiful, beautiful location. It's an area where families come out to and picnic. Um, you can wade into the water there. Uh, it's very easy flowing. And only a couple of hundred meters further down uh, the river, it goes out to the open ocean. So the club was sitting there right by the ocean, on the river, great location. Um, yeah, and the, the first night that I worked there was great. There were no problems at all. Nobody was fighting. I got paid at, in those days, this goes back a few years, $10 cash in hand. <clears throat> And at the end of the night, I got a shot of whiskey to <laughs> drown my sorrow <laughs> down with, which basically was non-existent. I was pretty happy. So, yeah, and uh, I finished at 2 in the morning. I got on my motorbike. That's how I used to get around the Gold Coast. Still do. I have a, a motor scooter, not a motorbike. Then I had a motorbike. I had a CBR 1000. Nice it was bike. Very nice. Yeah. Like, well, very like uh, what year is that? This was, um, hang on a second, let me think. Oh, God. <laughs> 84, 85, give or take. The CBR 1000 is still being manufactured as a 1000. That's manifested itself into the 900, which was called the Fireblade. Then they did the 600, and then they went down to a 400, a 300, a 150cc model. Yeah, you've got a whole, the whole gamut now of the CBRs, yeah? Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, back in those days, they had just built a brand new road from the center of the city down to uh, Telebadra, which wasn't being used. It went by a university called Bond University, so it was basically a huge long stretch of about four or five kilometers of vacant, barren, newly tarped, street with one stoplight in the middle from start to finish. And I remember one night with my CBR just wanting to see what the maximum speed would have been or could be. I decided to take it on that road, which was the road I traveled on normally to go to work and to go back home. But I decided at 2 o'clock in the morning, seeing that there was no traffic whatsoever on that road, to see how fast I could go. And when the light turned green initially at the intersection where I started, I revved it up, and I just went full out. And when I got to a, a 200, 
at 55 kilometers an hour, and I felt that I still had some go on it. I could have gone faster, but the oncoming light was coming at me too quickly. I decided that's enough. 255 miles would be... About 150? Uh, more than that. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I just Googled it. 255 kilometers per hour equals 158.67 miles per hour, or 255 oh, kilometers. I'll tell you what. When you're on two wheels... That's fast. That is really fast, Bob. I've never been that fast. It feels like... I mean, everything, the wind, the... The, the telegraph poles, the few houses to my side were just zipping by like crazy. And, uh, yeah, I figured if I ever need to go really fast, I'm able to do that. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, the first night went fast. I, had to, I got to try my bike out. The second week, my uh, student comes back to me. He goes, Bob, you're going to join us again this Thursday. The reason he wanted me on Thursday, because it was dollar night. You can buy a drink for a dollar. So the place used to get packed out with drunks because it was cheap drinking all night long. Mm -hmm. Unlimited. As many drinks as you want. Each drink is a dollar. So there used to be a lot of trouble. A lot of people used to get drunk, drunk, and they used to get into fights, which is something that happens in bars, especially in Australia. All right. So the second week I go to work there, that night, individually speaking, 42 fights. 42 separate fights oh my God. from start to in, in the five hours that I was working there. And I was standing in the middle of it like an idiot, not knowing who started it, why it started, how my buddies working with me were on top of the situation in the blink of an eye, and I'm st standing there like an idiot, not knowing what to do, where to go. By the time I turn around trying to deal with one fight, Another fight across the room was broken out, and there's a thousand people you got to get through. This was crazy, and I thought to myself, I'm actually quite fascinated. And I said, I've got to learn how to do this better, and just learn how to do this. Period. So, the week after, when Ralph, my buddy, came back to school to study with me, uh, I said, Ralph, sign me in for every dollar night that will be for the near future. I want to come back and I want to work with you and I want to learn how to do this job better than what I did last week. And he says, yeah, he says, yeah. He says last week you were pretty useless, but it's okay. It all got sorted out. I said, I'll prove to you that I'm not useless in the future. As time went by, I went to the owner one night and I said to him, his name was, um, I don't know, an old Greek fellow on the club. And he ran it jointly with two of his sons who were in their early, mid-30s. He was in his uh, late 60s, or early 70s. His name was Chris. That's it. Chris Xantos. Quite, quite, quite a well-known personality here on the Gold Coast, not only because of the club, but his family. His, it was a family business, and they owned four or five big clubs in Brisbane as well. Mm. So they were quite affluent and... I went up to Chris and I said, Chris, I'd like to ask you if I could rent the venue from you on um, a quiet night. And he says, uh, what do you have in mind? I said, I'd like to organize a kickboxing tournament because I've gone to a few that I've seen here staged on the Gold Coast. And I can say 
with all honesty that I believe that if I were to promote a tournament, I could do a far better job than all the shows that I've seen already, which means good business for me and for you. And Chris says to me, okay, well, I'll give you what? The deal is simple. We take the bar, meaning the club takes the bar. I take the gate. And all the expenses of doing everything are on me. I said, okay, that's a deal. We shook hands. We didn't sign a contract or anything, which in hindsight was a mistake. But at the moment, it was good enough. And... It got me up and running, and uh, three months later, I put together my first kickboxing show ever here on the Gold Coast. And I charged $10 per uh, head of anybody attending as a spectator. And I managed to get a whole bunch of companies as sponsors to donate, uh, in some cases, money, which was very helpful in putting this show together. I split that as, to, as prize money, which I gave the fighters paid the fighters, whatever, and also I organized a beauty competition, and I paid money to the winner of the beauty competition, which people in those days had never seen a beauty competition connected together with a kickboxing tournament. It was either one or the other, mm -hmm. but I had managed to do both of them together, and I got some celebrities to come in and officiate as well, uh, to make an appearance, to give a plug about whatever they were doing. And uh, on that night, on a Sunday night, which normally had a crowd of 150 or 200 people, we actually had managed to pull in 900 paying guests. So together with all the workers, the competitors, and whatnot, we probably had close to 1,500 people there, which for a Sunday night was absolutely unbelievable. Um, yeah, and 900 people at $10 a head was $9,000. So that was a pretty good payday for me. <laughs> you made money on that. I certainly did. I certainly did. And it got a lot of people pissed off with me for various reasons, which I'll put down to basic petty jealousy, mostly other promoters that saw what I did and how successful I had done this. Um, I'd gotten uh, promotional write-ups on TV, local TV, and radio, and newspaper. I had posters saturated the whole Gold Coast. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I blitzkrieged through the media with the exception of TV. TV, I got a write-up for the having organized the uh, girls, the beauty competition, along with the fighters. That was something the, the local news was interested in. I got some pre-publicity by... The getting the TV people to come out and do the write-up on the beauty competition that I organized co-jointly with the fighting. Okay, so how did you get to know people in kickboxing? Because it sounds like you, you basically knew a lot of people in uh, um, uh, karate from your, your schools, but so how did you get to know people well, in kickboxing in order to get that promotion going? All right. While I was teaching karate, I was also teaching kickboxing, which I had done for a number of years previously to that. Now, when I say teaching, that's exactly doing that, teaching, coaching. I wasn't a competitor. I never competed in kickboxing. I did compete in traditional karate tournaments ages before, but I was able to teach kickboxing and jointly 
having the school, I managed classes for other teachers. And we had some kickboxing teachers come in and teach their classes at the gym that I was managing, where I was also teaching karate and a bit of kickboxing. So basically, through, through time, I got to know a lot of fighters. And once you get to know somebody, the way Australia works is a very small population. Everybody knows somebody who knows somebody. You get introduced around. You start making a name for yourself. Uh, the fact that I was a manager, a teacher, put me in good stead with a lot of people that, yeah, weren't necessarily doing traditional karate, but, yeah, got to know me as a kickboxing coach, and we established connections that way. Hmm. And once the whole, the whole event started to snowball, yeah, basically it was me getting on the phone and calling up schools of everywhere that I knew of, that I heard of, getting the national magazines, going through the directories, opening them up the uh, index pages with the listing of where the schools were, just blindly calling up saying, look, I'd like to talk to the owner. I said, my name is Bob, Bob Batwin. I'm putting together a tournament. I'm looking for fighters in this weight division. I'm offering accommodation. I'm offering transport. I'm offering prize money. Any more questions when they heard I'm offering transport, accommodation, and prize money? I had people calling me saying, hey, I'll be, I'll be there, and I, 10 of my friends are going to call you next week. And it just snowballed. How long were you uh, promoting uh, kickboxing? Well, it took me about three months from start to finish to put the show together, hold it, finish with it, and be able the following week to go to Chris and say to Chris, Chris, when can I rent the room again for my next show? And then Chris said to me, oh, slow down. <laughs> he had a very, a very heavy big accent. He goes, oh, puppy boy, slow down, slow down. Me and my boys, we're doing the next show. I'm going, oh, Chris, please, don't tell me this. He goes, don't worry, we have some job for you. We put you in with us. We take care of you. Yeah, don't worry, don't worry. And that's, he left it at that. He said to me that he was going to put on a show with his sons, of which one of them had been a kickboxing student himself and was aligned with the largest kickboxing organization in Australia. So his son having those connections, it wouldn't be a problem for him to find fighters. The venue being at their disposal, well, obviously, you know, I mean, everything was tailor-made for them. The fact that I had put a successful show together established that venue as a place where potentially they could build a business which was something different than the rock and roll music that they were involved in, or just the basic nightclub drinking bar business that they had going there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and a couple of months went by and nothing happened. And I went up to Chris and I said, when are you putting your show together? When am I going to see some extra income of me doing something that you even haven't told me yet what I'm doing? He goes, don't worry, don't worry. We will let you know. We will let you know. A month went by and I figured, okay, screw this. I've got nothing to lose hanging around here waiting for nothing. I'll go hire a different venue. And I went out to uh, um, about 10 kilometers up the road. There's a 
small suburb called Broad Beach, very, very uh, touristy area here on the Gulf Coast. And um, they've got a community center there. And I walked in there and I said, how much is it for the night to hire the venue? And basically they told me the amount. They told me uh, what, what the conditions are. I told them I want to put a boxing ring in the middle of the floor. They said, well, that's kind of novel. Nobody's ever done that before. I said, well, this is the first time for everything. I said, I'll organize security. I'll organize the boxing ring. I'll organize the lighting, the sound. Everything that needs to be done, I'll take care of it. All I need is to have the venue available for me on the night. And that's what I did. I put together a show. Um, 850 spectators, a little bit less than I had at the playroom. Um, but still good enough to have, have it be considered a success in every which way. And uh, the following week I went back to work. And uh, Ralph, the guy that was the manager, he had uh, changed places with an, also another student of mine whose name was Archie. So Archie took over the management of the security at the playroom. And Archie comes up to me and he goes, hey, Bob, uh, Billy, Chris's son, is upstairs in his office, wants to have a talk with you. Okay, so I go upstairs and I knock on the door and Billy says, open and come in. And I walk in. Billy says to me, sit down. I sat down in front of Billy. He's got the big desk in front of me and him. And uh, Billy looks at me and he goes, uh, well, Bob, what do you have to say? And I said, about what? And he goes, about this tournament that you did last week in Broadbeach. I said, yeah, it was uh, quite a successful tournament. Thank you for asking. He goes, I'm not really interested. He goes, I want to know why you, why you backstabbed us. And I go, wait, what? I backstabbed you? How is it that I backstabbed you? He says, yeah, me and my dad, we were planning on putting on a show here. I said, yeah, when? In the future. And you were going to have something for me to do with it, but you never spoke to me about it. When I asked your dad a couple of months ago about doing something, he said, it's in the future. It's always in the future. While I'm waiting, I went out and put a show together in an area completely unrelated to your area where your club is at a different time altogether, didn't interfere with your business. I don't see where this backstabbing accusation comes into play. He says, no, no, you did the wrong thing by us, and I don't want to see you here in the club working in any capacity whatsoever, not security, not promoting, nothing. I said, well, I'm sorry to hear this from you, Billy. He goes, that's not the least of it. He says, whenever I hear that you're going to do something somewhere else, I'll be the first one there to make sure it never happens. And he goes, me and my family, we're going to come to your grave and we will dance on your grave. This is how this guy spoke to me. I said, Billy, are you all right? <laughs> yeah, man, I'm fucking all right. You fucking asshole backstabber. Get the fuck out of my office. Like, that's how he spoke. And I just said, okay, Billy, see you later. And I walked out and I came downstairs and uh, Archie saw me. He saw my face. He saw that I wasn't happy. He goes, what's going on, Bob? I said, I just got canned. I, got, I just got sacked, fired. Why? They reckon I backstabbed them because I went and did a show in Broad Beach. Uh, Archie's going, oh, man, I don't believe this. I said, believe it. It's true. If you want to go talk to Billy upstairs, that's fine. But I said, 
don't worry about it. The way Billy spoke to me, I'm telling you right now, I will never, ever set foot again in the playroom. And everything that was is history, and we're just going to leave it at that. And I walked out, and uh, three months later, man, in one of the biggest nightclubs in Surface Paradise, about 15, 20 kilometers up the road from the playroom, it was called Megadrome, the Megadrome nightclub. I staged another tournament, and I had 1,200 spectators show up to that one. So I was off and running. I was like, nothing was stopping me now. Were you still yeah. teaching uh, karate as well? Was that still a thing? I was doing it, but not as intensely as I was previously, because I was starting to make a lot more money doing these uh, tournaments. And I decided I'm going to make this a full-time job. So that's what I started doing. And alongside with it, within a year or two, I went to Japan and I started promoting Australian fighters to Japanese promoters. So they started asking me to bring fighters to fight in Japan. So I got paid as a manager liaison. And um, on top of that, some of the um, club owners or promoters saw that I had all these girls doing these beauty competitions. And they wanted me to bring girls to Japan to work for Japanese clubs. And at first I was a little bit reluctant, a little bit sus. I wasn't sure what this whole category, job category was about. Mm. But I started going to the clubs and sitting there and finding out that the girls that work there, especially the foreigners, what they do is they're hostesses, which means like, um, yeah, they basically sit with the customers. They serve the food to the customers at the tables. They pour drinks. They converse with them. In certain clubs, very few, they might be dancing with the customers. They get paid. They get tip money for that. Um, so they sing karaoke, again, at clubs that have the uh, equipment for that. Most of them don't, but some of them do. And uh, gradually I started bringing girls to work in these clubs. They got paid very well. They were happy to go there. They were happy to reassign themselves when their contracts, the contracts were for 90 days. When the contracts finished, they went home. They contacted me. They said, Bob, we want to come back. We want to do this again. Gradually I built up a network of nightclubs. And I was doing that also, on top of bringing fighters to um, various venues. By that, by that time, I, I had moved to Japan. I was living full-time in Japan. With your family, or what happened there? What's, what, what, did you take your family to Japan? Unfortunately, me and my wife split up. And um, I had uh, I had met a Japanese girl, and it was that Japanese girl that I went to meet in Japan, and she <laughs> persuaded me to stay in Japan. Uh -huh. She didn't need to persuade me a lot. I mean, I was doing a lot of business back and forth anyway, and I figured I might as well stay there and make the best of the situation. So at first, um, I was teaching English, doing security work. I'd also gotten a job quickly doing security work in a club in Tokyo in Roppongi, which is the area where all the foreigners hang out, uh, teaching English, running around the city during the, in the daytime doing that, and periodically bringing fighters, periodically bringing some girls to work in clubs as well. Gradually, it just everything started to move. The uh, fighters and the girl business started to surge, 
the English um, teaching was the first thing that I gave up on. And the second thing that I gave up on was the security work because I did have a full-time job and it was a good money, but I decided to give up on it and just focus on my own business privately, which after two years, two and a half years of living in Japan uh, and working for other people and semi-privately, that's it. I went completely uh, full out on just being self-employed. And what year is this? What, what, uh, what time frame are we looking at? 1996 is when I moved to Japan, so it would have been 19, uh, 19, uh, 1998, 99, 2000, 2001. I was, yeah, living and working full-time in Japan. Yeah, during that time, I went through quite a few different people working for me as assistants. I finally had an Australian guy sign up with me under the um, condition that he become a co-owner manager, not just an employee. And I agreed to it, and we worked out a time schedule that if he proves himself over the course of a year, we will be equal partners by the time that year rolls around, which it did. And uh, during the course of that time, him working for me, and previously I was traveling all over the world, going out, uh, meeting fighters from all over the world, also uh, running auditions for girls who wanted to come to Japan. I was traveling a lot in Europe, uh, interviewing people for both professions. And, uh, yeah, I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. Yeah, okay, and uh, till this day, I still have not been able to live down the girl hostess business that I did in Japan because people started talking crap about me being a pimp and running a prostitution ring, and this went on and on and on, and I never had anything to do with this. The reason, first and foremost, and principally, this is something that people don't know about Japan, and people that know Japan understand this. Prostitution is run exclusively, exclusively, by the Yakuza, the Japanese Mafia, which is a real organization. It's, it's a bona fide organization in Japan. Unlike the American Mafia, which has had big ups and big downs, and has splintered off in a thousand different directions, with most of the bosses being killed, Japan is very different, very different. Now, seeing the prostitution is one of their big money makers and is exclusively run by them, I would never have been accepted into their organization to do anything with that business, even if I wanted to. No way. <laughs> not that I wanted to. Mm -hmm. I'm not Japanese. I'm not a Yakuza member. I'm not a pimp. There was no need for me to do anything like that, even if I wanted to, which would never have happened. And this is something people that don't know Japan should understand. The Japanese don't need competition. They don't like competition, and they don't tolerate competition. So, end of story. And people that make up these wild fantasies of me running a brothel and a ring of prostitutes and living off of them 
uh, in Japan in some sort of a, a, a castle or something. I mean, seriously, this is very deluded thinking. Never happened and never would. End of story. But um, the hostessing business is interesting because Japanese business people do pay a lot of money to sit in clubs with young ladies for the most part and have them talk to you. Basically, a Japanese salaryman, as they're called, they're married people for the most part who don't have a social network to speak of, that don't have hardly any friends, that happen to be extremely lonely. And after work, either with colleagues or by themselves, they go to these clubs um, and they sit there and girls walk up to them and sit with them and look after them. And for this, the customers, the Japanese salarymen, pay a lot of money. And you would be surprised how much money at a low level a members club of this kind of business. It's not unusual for a Japanese salaryman to drop two or three thousand dollars for an evening. And that's considered wow. a low amount of money. I've seen guys drop twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars an evening to sit around with a group of girls to do nothing other than talk with them. And in the best of cases, if there was a dance floor, dance with them, do some karaoke singing, and that was it. So basically just have a friend for the night. Pretty much it. And be a hostess. Be, sit there and, and be entertaining and have a good conversation as much as you can if you're a foreigner uh, that doesn't know the language, but uh, to, to just help them have a good night, really. That's exactly what the girl's job description is, and that's what they're doing. And uh, I had a three-page contract stipulating all the conditions as far as living, transportation, accommodation, cooking facilities, you name it, everything was written down very, very specifically. And also another clause of the contract, which I made sure the girls understood, okay, for their safety, for my benefit as well. I said, no prostitution is permitted under any circumstances. If anybody is caught doing anything of the sort, you are fired, you are terminated immediately, and you will be kicked out of the club, out of the job, and out of the country. I personally said to the girls, if I hear of anybody doing anything like this, I'm driving you to the airport. I'm watching you as you board the plane. Now, having said that, in the course of all the years that I did this business with all the thousands of girls that I brought to work in Japan, I had probably a handful of girls that did the wrong thing by me. And you should have seen the, the, the sight on their face, the shock when they were boarding the airplane and I was waving goodbye to them as they were going home. I said, you thought this was bullshit. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> the thing is, we didn't need to do this for another reason. If the police were to raid one of the clubs, they could close the club down if they heard that they were actually uh, doing this sort of business. The Yakuza wouldn't have consented, wouldn't have stood by quietly. The police, who, by the way, are very much incorporated with the Yakuza in Japan, all right, uh, they wouldn't have accepted that. Nobody would. Just period. Nobody would. 
the stupid girls that thought for a moment that they can get away with this, that's exactly what they were. They were very silly, stupid girls. And um, I've got to say one thing. Um, in the course of all the years with all the girls that I did this business with, nobody was harmed. Nobody was abducted. Nobody went missing. In fact, the majority of them came back on repeat engagements with me. That's a sign that everything was above and beyond their expectations. The fact that they came back some, some as many as five, six times, one after each other, showed that, you know, they were really happy with the job. And there were a few girls that actually did meet some customers, and I will say this, they wound up coming back afterwards on their own, getting together with those customers, marrying those customers, living in Japan and having a family with those customers. But, hey, what, do you, what, what can you do? They're back to make a life for themselves. Yeah, that's and that's really the best of uh, that's really that's the best of the situation, isn't it? Really. Yeah, and some of them, by the way, some of the girls that did that, sent me letters thanking me for bringing them Japan to Japan in the first place, saying that they owed me a debt of gratitude for the fact that this is how they met their current husband and built their family and were in a very happy relationship there. So, that's that's a nice thing to receive, and it's a good note to note for your listeners, if anybody's listening, there is somebody besides you, Paul, there is somebody listening, right? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, I might have, uh, they're, they're in the single digits, but yeah. All right. The two or three people who are listening, enjoy all the stories and just remember one thing. And this I can say about myself because I've done this. Yeah. When you want to do something, no matter what it is, just go ahead and do it as crazy as it might be even if it means traveling halfway across the world, to do something insane, do it. Um, by the way, after Japan, I came back to Australia. And I had made enough money, and the business was still running, and I had a partner taking care of everything over there. He was still doing it. I was over here contacting workers from the past, potential workers for the future, using the Internet. The Internet came about. Everything started changing. Everything exploded worldwide. Um, my, my partner, Gareth, the Australian, said to me, Bob, look, I get along with you famously well. Your wife, I don't get along with her <laughs> at all <laughs> because they just did not get along with each other. <clears throat> he said to me, Bob, if you wouldn't mind taking her and going to live in Australia, we'll continue the business. You do your work from there, and I'll do my work here. And I said, okay. And I came back to Australia and did that for about a year until one day he called me up and he said, um, Bob, I'm going to be moving and closing down the business. I don't want to be living in Japan anymore. I'm going to move to Brazil. He had married a Japanese, of, uh, a girl, a Brazilian of Japanese ancestry. The girl looked 100% Japanese, where when she would walk on the street in Japan, People would speak to her in Japanese, which is natural. And she would say to him, I'm very sorry, I don't speak Japanese. Because she didn't. She spoke English and Portuguese. He wound up leaving the business, closing it down, and moving to Brazil. And unfortunately, the business came to an end. At um, that time, I had bought a house and renovated the house about a mile away from the house where 
my wife and children lived. Mm -hmm. And I did that so we'd be close enough proximity that my children could come visit me and I could visit them easily. But the Japanese wife did not appreciate that at all. And she made everybody's life miserable to the point where I finally got exasperated living with her that I just one day decided I'm going to leave her and I decided to move to Thailand. And I packed a bag, a real small little carry-on handbag, uh, and about four or five in the morning quietly ordered a taxi and I snuck out of the house and I took the taxi to Brisbane to the airport and I got on an airplane and flew to Thailand. Oh, without telling her? <laughs> without telling anybody <laughs> what yeah so that was uh, that was an interesting uh, experience and I kept myself um, secluded in Thailand unknownst to anybody that I was there probably for about two weeks wow you just up and disappeared and, uh, yeah, I went to Bangkok. Uh, I was in Bangkok for a week, and every place I sat down to have a drink, which are normally like, you know, tourist bars where foreigners come to Thailand and sit down and have drinks. Yeah. And there tend to be young Thai ladies working there for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, they would come to me, and every one of them would ask me if I'd been to Pattaya. All the, the Bangkok ladies would ask me, have I been to Pattaya? I said, what is Pattaya? Oh, it's a small little town south of here. I go, I've never heard of it. And they said, oh, it's very nice. There are lots of bars and it's got a beach and restaurants. And if you have the chance, you should go and see. And after a week of hearing this every night from every girl that sat down who wanted me to spend a lot of money on her, I said, okay, it's time to go see what Pante is all about. I got on a, on a bus and went down, I, I went into a travel agency. I booked a three-day hotel stay in South Patea got on a bus and drove down to Pattaya and stayed there. And after about a week, I decided to let my Japanese wife know that I was in Thailand. So I called her up and I, her name was Yokiko. I said, Yokiko, I'm in uh, Thailand. Why? She goes, why, why, why? Why did you leave? Why did you say anything? I've been running around like crazy, asking everybody where you are. I'm worried. I called the police, asking if they found you. I said, look, the only person that knows that I'm here right now besides me is you. That's it. And I'm not coming back unless you change your attitude of me having a previous family who I want to see, and I want them to be able to come to my house and see me. And if you don't change your attitude about giving everybody aggravation, uh, I'm not going to come back. So she says, okay, well, come back and I'm going to change my behavior and I'll make sure that everything's pleasant and everybody will be happy. I said, okay, then I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And a couple of weeks later, that gave me a month to be in Thailand altogether. So I got to experience Pattaya for three weeks, enjoyed it quite a bit, got to be in Bangkok for a week, did not really enjoy Bangkok at all. Um, yeah, I got on the plane and came back to Australia. And for about a week or two, Yohiko was very nice and she was very well behaved. And my kids came over and there wasn't a problem. And when I came over to uh, Nava's house, to their house, 
there was not a problem. And then after a couple of weeks, everything started uh, going downhill again. What I did this time, I packed a bag roughly around the same hour as the previous time that I went to Thailand, and I did the same thing. I went to Thailand again, and I sent Yukiko a message. I don't remember whether it was an email, whether it was a call. It was one or the other, and saying to her, look, everything that you've got, which means the money in the bank, the house, the furniture, the cars, everything, keep it. I will not be coming back to live with you. End of story. You want to go get a formal divorce, go ahead and do it. Materialistically speaking, you've got more than your fair share, and you're not going to get anything more from me. That's the end of it. And I'm not coming back to Australia, and I don't want to hear from you anymore. And I left it at that. She still sent, she got a lawyer, and the lawyer sent somebody to Thailand to hunt me down supposedly to get out of me whatever, whatever, what I took with me, which was something that belonged to me. And I told the person that came to find me that they're going, they can go back to Australia and tell the lawyers that have sent him that they're not going to get anything more out of me because there's nothing more to be had. I don't have anything more. That's it. I was building that big boat of mine at the time. That was pretty much it. I had a bit of money which I invested with the jewelry company, thinking that I'm living off the interest that the guy promised that he was going to pay me. And pretty much at that time, I think, we met each other. Yeah, so That's this is when, like... Uh, our friend James, James. Yeah, right. Yeah. Calls me up and he goes, hey, Bob, I got a friend coming from the States. I want to meet you. I want you guys to meet each other. I think you got a lot in common. And uh, maybe you guys can do something together. And I said, okay. And then I found out that you love motorbike riding. Yeah. And that it was your first time to be in Thailand. Yeah. And I was going back and forth between Kochang and staying in Pattaya because I was thinking about relocating my boat. And I said to you, Tom, let's get some big bikes, rent some big bikes, and let's go down and have a little holiday in Kochang. Yeah. which is Thailand's number number one island, biggest island in uh, Thailand. Yeah, and we took, uh, like, a, I couldn't believe the, the ferry that we took well, it was actually still floating. It was so rusty. It got us there. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Well, unfortunately, on the way, by she put her leg against the exhaust and burnt herself really badly. Yeah, it was, was a bad bird. And I thought to myself, what are we going to do? And she she was a real trooper. She says, look, I'm going to go back to Pate on my own. I don't want to spoil this holiday for Tom or you. You guys continue on. I'm going to go find a clinic, get taken care of to the best of their ability. And that's exactly what happened. She went back to Patea, got some medical attention for the burn, which was pretty bad. And you and I, uh, yeah, we continued down to Cochang. Yeah, we stayed there. I'm, uh, we kind of cruised around there a little bit. We st uh, stayed a couple nights. I don't know, two, maybe three nights? Two or three nights, I seem to remember, yeah. Yeah, I found a couple of bars. I don't remember exactly. Had a couple of drinks. Got to meet a few people there. Yeah. Uh, just drove around and enjoyed the, the island, which is a really beautiful place to be. Stunningly beautiful, yeah. 
and it's not yeah, and it was not very Thai, touristy at all which is interesting yeah by Thai, by Thai standards very little development compared to other islands in the south of Thailand yeah so today it's probably gone very more, much more developed but I seem to remember that we went on to the uh, east side and there was hardly any development whatsoever and there was a little bit of development on the west side yeah I couldn't tell you east from west but yeah because <laughs> I was basically I was following you <laughs> I was on a, I was on a, a, a wild trip and I was just like okay yeah just go with Bob Bob's cool people keep, keep with Bob <laughs> well uh, I'm just trying to think how to describe it in a way where people could relate to it Anyway, when we were driving together and we were looking to the north, the ocean was on our left side, which means we were on the west side of the island. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that would, uh, okay, that would make sense. All right, and if we were on the east side and we were driving north, the water would have been to our right side. So basically, if the water was on the left driving north, that means we were on the west. And if we we're on the driving north and the water was on the right side, that was driving on the east side. West side, east side, north. And obviously, the other way around was south. But again, because I lived there for so many years, I've got a natural compass in my body somewhere. So I always knew the direction, even if I didn't know exactly where we were, I knew in which direction we were heading. Yeah. Yeah. And on the but way, I remember it was very beautiful and we did have a good time and we had some good food and, uh, yeah, we met some locals and, um, yeah, then we went back to Pattaya. Pattaya. Yeah. And on the way back, uh, I slipped on some gravel and wrecked the muffler of the bike. And then we went back to the guy who owned it and uh, I had to explain to him uh, what had happened. Yeah, there was a bit of damage. And uh, he was asking for a lot in uh, repairs and whatnot. Anyway, we haggled. We got it down to, you know, a reasonable amount, which I thought was reasonable. And having lived there, I knew, I knew prices. So I convinced you, Tom, that what you're going to wind up paying this guy is reasonable. And as reluctant as you were, it got all sorted out. You paid it, and that was the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember sitting there, this guy's like going, talking like you know, thousands of bot, and I'm like, then there's no way, there's no way, because you have to, because wasn't it, what is it like five bot to the dollar? Or, I can't remember what the what the exchange rate was at the time, but he was asking for a lot of money. Yeah, it's probably give or take. 35 40 baht to a US dollar. One okay. US dollar would buy 30. So in, when he threw the numbers in baht, it sounded like thousands of that. When you worked it out to US dollars, it came out to a couple of hundred dollars altogether, you know, which still is a lot of money. And it's not something that you just want to toss away. But all things considered, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an, an unreasonable amount. And you definitely were not getting ripped off. You were, you were being charged for reasonable repairs which the guy had to make for yeah. the bike yeah and i and i did wreck it well a small amount remember and then we had to like in getting back it wouldn't it would stop because it wasn't getting air 
Remember that? We had to stop along the way at some point because the bike just wouldn't go because it, there wasn't enough compression with the engine or it wasn't exhaust. I remember having to stop because you just, it just wouldn't go. No matter how much gas you gave it, it just would not go. But that, that's, that, that's just part of the story. So here we are. So this is like, this is like, uh, boy, we're talking like maybe what, uh, August, I think. Is that right? August probably of like 2006. <laughs> Saying that I was living there permanently full time, to me, every day pretty much was the same. So I didn't really keep track of dates as much as you would have having come there for a limited time holiday. Mm -hmm. But I'll take your word on it being August, whatever. <laughs> to me, it was just me and Tom are going down to coaching and we're going to have fun. And we did. Which we did. Yeah, we had fun. It was good. It was a good time. And uh, so, when you're living yeah, in, in Thailand at that time, now how how are you making your living? Well, uh, let me think. When I was living in Thailand, I actually had enough money to survive using that money, which I invested. <laughs> I hate using the word invested. I had invest. I had split it down the middle pretty much, and had two investments. One was the tour boat which I had built, which never really made me any money. It just kept itself afloat up until the time it didn't. <laughs> and the other money I invested in in a jewelry company, under the agreement that I get a monthly income paid from the guy as uh, interest. And when the time comes that I want my principal back, I'll get it and do whatever with it. Anyway, um, when I started to realize that that principal that the guy had of my money, which was the only thing left after the boat had burnt and disappeared into the ocean, that insured, I lost about oh, 200,000 US dollars right there and then. Ow. And I had slightly a bit more with this guy supposedly taking care of it and paying me uh, some interest monthly, which kept me going. And then when I asked him for the money back, he disappeared. He ran away. So I was stuck in a pretty difficult situation where here I am in Thailand as a foreigner, not allowed to work because I didn't have a work permit. And all the money that I'd come to Thailand with basically disappeared. Half of it went into the ocean, and the other half went behind the cliff and ran off with it. Oh, man. And I stayed in Thailand for about a year trying to track this guy down. Now, this guy was obviously quite good at ripping people off. Now, the advantage that he had was he was a crook, born and bred. I found that out later. I won't go into too many details as to what that means, spoke Thai fluently, had everybody's money in his pocket or in an account somewhere, so he had the language, the know-how, and the money to evade everybody that was looking for him. In fact, I chased him down for a year, and I could not catch him. I would get to a hotel where he had stayed, where I was told two, three days earlier, he checked out and went somewhere else. And where he went, he wouldn't tell anybody. 
So that's it. After a year, I figured, you know, time to go back somewhere where I've got an easier place to exist. So I came back to Australia knowing that I could work here. And I started uh, working when I got back here. And uh, shortly afterwards, I got really sick. Oh, no. Yeah, and I wound up in hospital. Uh, probably about five, six months after returning to Australia, I wound up in hospital. Um, and the doctors told me that had I stayed away from the hospital a day or two longer, I would not have been coming to the hospital. I would have been escorted to a um, funeral home. <laughs> wow. I was, that close, I was that close to dying. What were you diagnosed Seriously, with? Blood poisoning. And um, I don't know I don't know why. I don't know how. And I stayed in the hospital for 10 days. And after 10 days, they said, okay, you can go home. And I got out of the hospital, and I've never, um, I've never felt the same since. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, physically speaking, I can't do anything that I did previously. Previously, I was really super energetic. I remember, especially in Thailand, I used to take these walks. I'd, I'd go for like a 10-kilometer walk every day, every evening. Um, yeah, I usually finish it off in one of the local bars, have a couple of beers, and go home and get up and do my painting, my artwork, and the following evening, do that whole thing over again. But anyway, uh, I've not been able to uh, find any work. Not that I'm really looking for work. The good thing about Australia is that if you're sick to some in some capacity, if you're not able to work, the government here will look after you. So basically, I have the government now looking after me. Now, I'm not living lavishly by any means, mm -hmm. um, but what I am doing is I'm putting uh, the time that I have to good use. I'm painting all the time, every day, from morning till night. And that being the case, and I've been doing this now for almost eight years, nonstop, I've actually collected quite a large amount of works and I'm thinking that uh, next year, that'll be 2019, mm -hmm. um, of organizing a exhibition. I think the best place would be Melbourne, Australia. Oh, you go down to Melbourne. I'm thinking Melbourne is known as the art capital of Australia. There's probably more artists and more galleries down there than anywhere else. The Gold Coast where I live is like a tourist city. It's a, it's a resort town. It's a town where you want to come to uh, and basically have fun. All the theme parks, Warner Brothers Movie World is based here. Uh, sea World is based here. Uh, there's another uh, Wet n Wild. It's like a, a water theme park. The Gold Coast is a tourist city, basically. Mm -hmm. Brisbane, which is about 
40, 50 miles up the road. That's the capital of Queensland. And the Gold Coast, which is right down on the southern tip of, the, of Queensland, we're bordering New South Wales. Mm -hmm. You go down to the end of the Gold Coast, the city, the, the strip, you get to uh, a town called Coolangatta, a suburb. Coolangatta, a part of it's in New South Wales, part of it's in Queensland. Mm. So we're right on the border. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, Melbourne is uh, more a cosmopolitan city. It's a bigger city as well, probably four and a half million people compared to the Gold Coast, which only has uh, half a million population. And Mel Melbourne's always been known to be um, the art capital of Australia. The big galleries, the, the major museums, everything's down there. Between Sydney and Melbourne have a rivalry between the two of them. For reasons being that I, my personal feeling is Melbourne is more established as an art capital than Sydney. That's the place that I think I should do my upcoming exhibition. Here we are now. We finally we've 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 got your life story, and uh, so here we are now. So you're you're doing okay health wise. Um, that's that's a difficult one to answer. Health wise, look, I'm st <laughs> I'm still alive and kicking. I'm not as active as I used to be. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's my biggest problem. I just my energy level. Physically speaking, is super low or maybe even non-existent. So I don't exercise at all, hmm. and for and for that reason, also I've gained a lot of weight. When you saw me, the time, the last time that you saw me, I weighed probably somewhere in the vicinity of maybe 82, 83 kilos. Yeah, I'd say it's right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and yesterday. I got on the scale at the doctor, and I was 122 kilos. Yeah, that's quite a bit of weight gain. Yeah, that's 40 kilos. That's close to 100 pounds. Now, you got to remember, this is the over the course of 10 years, that gradually sitting down and not being anywhere near as active as I used to be, mm -hmm. and my age being a factor, and the food that I eat being a factor, um, yeah, the, I'm starting to put on the weight, yeah. Um, so I still have energy to get up in the morning, to get myself in front of my easel, and to mix the paint and get the brushes into that and start painting, because that's what I'm doing every day, uh, all day, every day, painting and painting, nothing but painting. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you had to get to uh, have such a traumatic event to get to this point, but you know, uh, I'm kind of jealous a little bit that you get to do your art every day. That's uh, th that's a, a quite a luxury as well, you know. Well, I've got to be thankful to the Australian government for subsidizing me. That's basically what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They're giving me money. And allowing me to sit in front of my canvases day in and day out and do as much art and paint or anything else to my heart's content. Nobody comes around here and bugs me about it. Once in a while, I get a letter to go to some uh, agency to have a discussion with them. Um, and basically, I just bring them a letter from my doctor saying I'm not in good shape and they leave me alone. So 
it's um, it's a situation that's going to continue for another six months, and in six months' time, I will be eligible to receive what's called um, a pension. Basically, this is a, a small amount of money which every Australian is entitled to, every Australian citizen is entitled to, when they reach the proper age. And in, in, in accordance to the charts and the way they figured everything out is that myself having been born in 1953, at the age of 65 and a half, I'll receive the retirement pension. All right, so that'll give me the freedom to travel outside Australia without being penalized and having my pension um, not paid to me. Hmm. Yeah, this is what's happened a few times over the last few years. I've gone outside Australia. I've gone to Thailand twice, and I went to Israel once. And every time I did, they cut off my benefits. Hmm. So it turned out to be an expensive exercise. But then again, look, I may do. Uh, I'm not complaining. I'm not saying that it was unfair. That's, that's their policy. And, uh, yeah, I have to... Uh, abide by their rules and regulations. But when I turn 65 and a half, which is another six months from now, I'll be able to travel outside Australia and still receive my benefits. Well, that's good. So it's basically, basically a small pension, not, not a huge pension. It'll be a small pension. But I'll be able to survive overseas for a small period of time if I decide to go anywhere. And I'm hmm. planning on it, yeah? Well, okay. If this exhibition goes well that I'm planning to do next year in Melbourne, uh, it is quite possible that I might get some money by selling some of my artwork. You know, people are listening to this, so how describe your art. Well, first of all, it's imaginary. And if we want to put it into the context of uh, different descriptions of uh, words being thrown around to describe movements. The kind of work that I do is called fantasy realism or fantastic realism, which is an imaginary sort of, kind of like, um, well, I'm just trying to think in America, who would be a, a noted artist in that uh, genre? There's an artist nowadays, he's become semi-famous, somewhat famous, his name is Alex Gray. Do you know an artist in America by the name of Alex Gray? No, I don't, uh, unfortunately. And I know quite a few artists, but I, Alex Gray, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, Alex Gray, he's like one of the movers and shakers in the fantastic realism uh, direction. One of the more famous American artists. Okay, yeah, I just uh, um, I just looked him up, and uh, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen his art. Actually, I think I've seen some album covers of, of his. Right. Okay. Right, well, just to I give think. you an idea, he's a noted American artist within the vein of the kind of work that I do as well. Although my work is different than his, mm -hmm. there is some similarity there. And Alex Gray, it tends to be leading a movement in America of 
people that do this kind of uh, art. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied, I went to, to Europe uh, 20 years ago. I went to study with a fellow who runs seminars. He's also an American. His name is Philip Jacobson. At the moment, he lives in uh, Tucson, Arizona. But Philip Jacobson travels all throughout the world doing seminars. And he himself studied in Europe, in uh, Austria, with an artist who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, whose name was Ernst Fuchs. And Ernst Fuchs is considered the the big granddaddy of uh, this movement, this worldwide movement of fantastic realism. It's called fantastic realism, but it's all very imaginary work. So Philip Philip Jacobson was one of his students years and years ago, and has branched out and has gone around the world uh, doing seminars. And I was lucky enough to to do a seminar with him back in the year 2001. And I, I flew to Austria, and I uh, hung out there for a month in a uh, small little town called Reichenau, which is on the uh, base of the Alps. And, um, yeah, we had uh, stayed in a very nice hotel. Um and did nothing but paint pretty much every day, eight days a week. On the weekend, though, we'd have an excursion. We'd go into the city to a museum or something or other, or to a nice restaurant. Got to meet different professional artists there. Met some nice people. And, um, yeah, there was a group of about uh, 15 of us doing this uh, seminar with Philip Jacobson. And Philip Jacobson does these seminars like once or twice a year. He's always... Uh, advertising for the seminars that he's conducting. And uh, he just finished one in Greece. Yeah, on one of the islands there. And um, not sure exactly where the next one is. But, yeah, he's got a website, and um, he advertises all the time that you can join in to study with him. He's a personal disciple or student of Ernst Fuchs. Ernst Fuchs is the big daddy of the magical realism, the fantastic realism. I mean, he's considered by everybody in this genre of painting to be the number one artist ever. Hmm. And unfortunately, I met him in Europe back in 2001 um, a couple of times, but a couple of years ago he passed away. He was uh, 80, I think 85 years old. He just got old and lied down and went to sleep and didn't wake up pretty much. Well, that's how we but, pretty much all like to go. Yeah, but Tom, by the way, he left behind him behind a museum in Vienna. Uh, it's called the Ernst Fuchs Museum. And if anybody who listens to this broadcast and has an appreciation of art whatsoever, whatever form it comes in, fine art speaking, they should definitely make the effort to go to Austria, to Vienna, and go to the Ernst Fuchs Museum. And uh, it's, de- it's, it's definitely worth the trip. Okay, the, yeah. I see what you mean. Like you, like you, when you talk about, uh, uh, the uh, what's his name, Gray, and you talk about Ernest Fuchs, it's in your art, I can definitely see the, the similarity uh, 
in the yeah. style. And like I'm looking at like I see a painting right behind you, right behind your head there, and it's basically there's a guy there who's who's who is he's got a green face, but he's almost got like a rainbow of balloons that go through his head. So you know, it's very fantastical and uh, original. And uh, let me put it upside right. So you right instead better? of sideways, yeah. Is and, that better? Yeah, yeah. And and I can Hang see on. that your your place there is just full of art. My house has become a studio, which in essence has become a storage room for paintings. I've got, believe it or not, I'm sitting here among 400 and somewhat pieces of artwork. Oh wow! All right, I'm going to have a very big exhibition. It's going to be a retrospective because. I've got stuff that I've actually done years ago when I was a kid. I still have it. Oh, wow. I'm taking everything that I haven't sold, and I'm going to be exhibiting all my works. You know, I've got you. You sent me a a copy of your art. I've got it right here. Oh, that's that's a lithograph, by the way. Yes, yes. Yeah, sir. lithograph. That's a lithograph. Pointillism. And I, I actually did that in Holland. I did that at the Art Academy of the Hague. I'm really happy yeah, that I, I'm I, a very proud owner of that artwork. The original I did on a stone with a uh, quilt pen. To enlighten your, your listeners, the millions of them that have tuned in <laughs> at, this, <laughs> at this precious moment when they're listening to us. <laughs> Let me just explain the process. It's quite interesting. You take a big limestone. I mean, we're talking at least the size of the piece of paper there that this has been printed on. Yeah, it's good. Some, it's a good like a, like a foot and a half by probably two and a half feet. Yeah. Well, that limestone, give or take, is like, you know, maybe six or eight inches thick. It's a heavy thing. It's, it's a monster of a thing to move around the studio. And you've got stones which are even bigger, which sometimes need to be moved with uh, forklifts. But anyway, the process is pretty simple. You take a stone like that, it's a sandstone, you grind it down, you smooth it out, and it's like a glass finish to it. And then what you do is um, you use a grease ink to draw on the stone. The grease ink is such that it allows you to see what you're doing. Now, you can use certain powders as well. You can use these inks. That piece in particular is ink, which I used a quilt pen to paint onto the stone using a method of work called pointillism, which is dot by dot. Mm -hmm. It's all dots, complete dot, nothing but dots. And when you finish that, you pour chemicals on the image that you drew, and it eats away at the stone, and the grease that you put on the stone to begin with the drawing, that resists, resists the acid. So it rises, the acid eats into the stone with a big roller afterwards. You roll over the stone once you've cleaned it off. And you just do this until you get the right consistency of ink all over the image that you've drawn. And you put a piece of paper on top of the stone and you run the stone through a press. And when you pick up the paper off the stone having it run through the press you've got the image and that's how that's made so 
I ran an edition of 100, but each and every one of them is original. Very cool. Um, once the stone has been used, what you do, you take another stone, it's called a grinding stone, and you grind down the image that you originally drew. So you erase it all together. You completely erase the image you've done. So you can't make any copies. But to get today, with technology being what it is, you can copy anything, as you well know. Mm -hmm. My advice to aspiring people who like to work with copying, go for the small colored bills with the numbers. You can copy those, and people tend to want to accept those as often <laughs> as you get handed to them. Now, the downside of that is that if law enforcement catches you doing it, they will nab you and throw you in the clink. So you can either do the artwork and sell artwork, which is like, you know, got times when somebody will buy something, sometimes not. The money, the money forging is a lot more lucrative. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's, it's a printing process and... Seriously, the reason I got into it in the first place is because I learned how to do lithographs from the time that I went to paint at the San Francisco Art Institute with this teacher that basically ruined my sketch and got me completely turned off of wanting to paint altogether. So I learned how to do the lithographs, and that piece that you got on the wall, that's a handmade lithograph, which I personally printed it's it's all done it's drawn by me it's edged by me it's printed by me so and now owned by me i've forgotten that you have that but now that i've seen that you do have that tom take good care of it it's a collector's item and one of these days it'll be worth a fortune <laughs> <laughs> well it's uh it's it's uh, worth more than that to me I don't ever tend to get rid of it. I, I would like to get it framed, but that's about us. That's about it. All right. Well, look, there are a lot more people that are capable and uh, quite uh, skilled at putting frames together than actually doing that lithograph image. Yeah. So take it to a local framer and have them make put a nice frame around it. And having said that, in um, let me think. Yeah, next year, by the end of next year, 19, no, 2019, I will have organized my exhibition, hopefully in Melbourne. I was thinking about bringing my stuff out to America, doing it in the States, either Los Angeles, New York, or going to Europe. I can go to London. I can do it in Paris. I can do it in Amsterdam. Basically, I can do it anywhere I want. But seeing that I'm here in Australia and uh, Melbourne, Australia, uh, the state of Victoria, is well known as a art scene, art market, I think it would be a good idea for me to do it here and save a little bit on the expenses of sending everything overseas. Yeah, that's that will be the expensive part is uh, getting it, uh, especially protecting it for travel. The thing about my situation here in Australia, in six months' time, my status changes from somebody who's supposedly uh, being uh, looking for work to retired. I'll be 
officially retired, which means the government will give me money to live without putting any um, obstacles. If I leave Australia now, they cut me off. They will not pay me anything. Mm -hmm. But in six months' time, I'll be able to leave Australia and I'll still get my pension money. Yeah. Which is will be an ongoing an ongoing situation, which will allow me to go to China to source frames for all my artwork and hopefully be able to afford framing all my artwork. Seeing that I've got so many, I don't know, I think maybe I'm maybe maybe I'm deluding myself that I'll be successful in this quest. Now I can tell you right now, this is uh, something again which might be of interest to you or your listeners who follow art in the world and What's happening where and what? There is a city in China which has been designated like China's official art city. So they've got hundreds, if not thousands, of art studios for every kind of art, specifically painting. They do incredible reproductions. And along with that, hundreds of shops that do nothing but frames, hundreds of shops that do nothing but canvases or brushes. I mean, it's a self-contained community that has thousands of everything. And that's where I want to go to source out the frames. Mm. Because I'm thinking to myself, if I can't find it there, I'm not going to be able to find it anywhere, especially at the cost that they do it in, yeah? Mm-hmm. If people want to look at your art, where do they go to to find it, to just at least view it? Well, at the moment, you can you can see part of the stuff that I have. I've got a page on the net on Facebook. Okay, you go to Bob Batwin Art. Simple as that. That's B-O-B-B-A-T-W-I-N. Yeah, but two words, B-O-B. Mm-hmm. Then the next word, B-A-T-W-I-N. The next word, art, A-R-T, Bob Batwin Art. And I've got about 60-somewhat works presently exhibited, and I've probably got a few hundred more sitting back here <laughs> in my home studio that I haven't bothered yet to photograph and to upload to the computer mm-hmm. because I'm either painting or I'm uploading photos, and I'd rather be painting and deal with the uploads later at a future stage maybe with the assistance of somebody who can do it for me. Mm-hmm. For anybody that's listening out there that wants to see some of my stuff, Bob Batwin Art. Look, I got I had a guy just a couple of months ago in America. He's living in Florida. He contacted me. He asked for a piece that I exhibited on my, on my website. And um, he said, how much? I said, make an offer. So he made an offer, and I said, okay. And the next thing I know, he sent me the money and I sent him the piece. And he's got it. And he's happy with it. And uh, the money that he paid me for it went for art materials. So I've got some new art materials that I'm happy with also. (laughs) (laughs) Fair trade. I'll tell you what. He got a good deal. If he were to walk into a gallery and see the exact same piece that he bought from me directly on the net, in a gallery, I can tell you this, Tom, he would have paid a minimum of 10 times more. A minimum, 10 times more than what he paid me. So 
he's very, very happy with what he paid. And the fact that I said to him, make an offer, and it was his offer to begin with, hey, it worked out for everybody. So, again, it's Bob Batwin Art on Facebook. I used to have a, a professional web page. I took that down because I wasn't getting a lot of feedback. I get a lot more feedback from Facebook than I do from the other website that I don't have anymore. And, and it's free. Um, yeah, it's free. I, kept, I constantly keep getting requests from Zuckerberg to pay him money. He's going to advertise my website for me. But so far, I haven't sent Zuckerberg any money. I figured he's got enough. I think we're all in agreement. He's doing well for himself, right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, he knows how to enjoy himself. He gets to go before congressional hearings. He gets to get grilled. He gets his face plastered all over the TV. He gets to have the sweat beads running down the side of his face, dripping down his chin. It's a nice look, and he's been very he's been very successful with his web page. Um, and I'm sure that he's going to be staying in business for many many years to come. Right? We don't have to worry about Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> now. If the guy wanted to do the right thing by all the little members of the Facebook community, uh, especially artists, because artists are always considered to be a special niche in society for one reason or another. What Zuckerberg could do is give a lot more promotional space and promote artists, period. Now, that could be graphic artists fine artists, musicians, sculptures. Um, I would even go as far as saying architects. I mean, there's architects nowadays which are doing incredible work, incredible work. He could give them a big, huge platform. He doesn't have to charge them money to run an ad. He can afford to give them the space for free. He can promote them. He can do the Zuckerberg page of world fine art. You know, he can, he can become a philanthropist and he can take art throughout the world under his auspices and just promote everything and be a real good guy and then, then when he gets called in front of Congress and he gets blamed for all the nasty crap that he does he can say look I'm giving artists a break and there's going to be a lot of artists that will applaud that and be appreciative of the fact that to a degree, that's true. But at the moment, I mean, seriously, he's asking me money to, like, expand on the page with him. A little bit for free, but a lot more is costing. So, anyway, I've forgone, I've forgone the uh, additional payments to promote my page more than it's promoted. I've got a few hundred people that are friends of mine. They see my work. If anybody thinks it's nice enough to show somebody who I don't know personally, they're always welcome to transfer on the um the site so bob batwin art that's it thanks a lot for for doing this bob i really do appreciate it and hopefully more than just a handful of people hear it but yeah bob batwin art on facebook let me just say this before you cut off the uh the broadcast if anybody who listens to this broadcast should go and find me on facebook by all means, you're welcome to send me a message, say hello. If you're interested in my artwork, let me know. 
you're all welcome. And um, if you actually want to purchase something, I'll leave it up to you to tell me what you like and how much you want to pay for it. And if it's a reasonable amount that you're willing to pay for it, more likely than not, I will say yes. So you've got everything to gain and absolutely nothing to lose. So that's my little piece to camera, as they say in the biz. We'll be hearing from everybody in the near future. And I love your art, Bob. I really do. I hope a lot of people buy your stuff. So that's it. Yeah, that's my buddy Bob. What an interesting life, don't you think? Bob Batwin. There are samples of Bob's art and a link to his works at www.tomversations.com. Thank you for listening, and please do subscribe right now. And this is Tom Versations, T-H-O-M Versations, where the H makes all the difference. I'm Tom Cocaine, over and out. <laughs>